The Carl Nelson Show. Good morning, Wake Up Squad, and thanks for rising with us again later. Doctor of Clinical Psychology, Jeff Menzies, will be back in our classroom. Dr. Jeff will discuss the uh, male and female role reversals and the confusion they cause in relationships. Also, the problems they cause for the community. But before we get to Dr. Jeff, financial advisor, J.B. Bryant will share some pointers on how to counter the rising prices caused by the runaway inflation rates. But to get us started today, Dick Gregory's youngest son, Johansson, is here. Yohansa, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Good morning, Carl. How are you this morning? Always a pleasure to be here. Excellent, brother. How are you? How are you? Uh, I'm outstanding, man. I'm I'm outstanding. <laughs> you know, for, for those who uh, who are who are, are true true Dick Gregory fans and followed his his life and legacy, they'll remember that while he passed away uh, August nineteenth uh, and twenty seventeen, six years ago, this weekend. Um, September 16th was actually the sixth anniversary of his homegoing ceremony that we had here in um, Maryland at the City of Praise uh, Family Ministry. So just, uh, just, just remembering that moment six years ago that day and how wonderful it was and the joy that it brought my mother. So, so yeah. Yeah. It, but, you know, it doesn't seem that long, man. Six years already? Wow. It's yeah, yeah, six years, six years. But you know, hope the mom's is okay, and and uh, tell her we all send her love. Uh, no, you know absolutely, absolutely. She's doing outstanding, and just just loves to reminisce and remember. Just you know, every time I talk to my mom, Carl, I learn something new about <laughs> not just my, my my dad, but their relationship that I never knew before. And so, yeah. Yeah, she's doing great. Though. I definitely will share that. You know, because you have had, a, and I say have, because you still have an amazing dad. I mean, you you can talk to on any. You know what he was like. People ask me how we do the show, and have we have certain guests come on all the time, and I tell them they're like records, they're like they're like artists, like a Marvin Gaye or a Stevie. They 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 have a, a catalog, so you know you could play all the stuff, Luther, you know, and, and they're still hits. The guest, uh, Dick Gregory, is like that. He, you can pick up any subject, any person, any topic, anything, and, and you've got conversation going with, with your dad. And as you That's know, it, it, there's, you, you mentioned a name, and he'll, he'll share an experience he had with that person. And it's mind-blowing. Yeah. You know, we talked about Marlon Brando. You talked about Bob Marley. You know, <laughs> just, people from just way out, just, you wouldn't expect him not to even know. He talked about JFK. He's had all these experiences, yeah. but he also had a lot of experience with athletes. I want you to share that with some of our, some of our, uh, our audience this morning, some of the, the experiences your dad had with athletes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as you said, you know, my dad's life and legacy was so expansive that so many people, even those, you know, who were, you know, Dick Gregory fanatics, there were just so many things that people either didn't know or would be surprised to find out. And, you know, I was, I was speaking with, um, uh, we saw all these just amazing things going in the black sports world, speaking with uh, my wife and saying, you know, there were so many 
experiences that 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 really shaped the sports world that my dad, believe it or not, was a part of. I mean, first and foremost, um, you know, some may have known, but his where he started his career was because of sports. He went to college, uh, Southern Illinois University, on a track and field scholarship. You know, coming out of uh, uh, Sumner High School in St. Louis, uh, Illinois, in the late um, in the in the in the early 1950s, he really uh, set the record uh, for uh, success, and 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 really the 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 the, the mile was his main race. But he did other long distance. Um, and coming out as the top miler uh, in the St. Louis area and went on and used that as a pathway to college. And then, you know, that opened up his career in comedy and, and, and you name it. Um, but one of the things that my dad did, because remember, you know, he used, it was athletics to comedy, comedy to civil rights, and then civil rights was the doorway to health and nutrition that defined so much of his life was that, you know, he used himself as, I won't say a guinea pig, but as kind of the standard for everything that he learned. And it was in the early 1970s that he worked with a couple of uh, health nutritionists uh, um, and, uh, and developing what at the time was known as the Forex formula. And so the Forex formula was a completely, you know, what we would now call plant-based, plant-based, organic, holistic product. That was the basis for what he used as, your, as one of the most memorable things that he did in providing nutrition when he ran across the country from ni- in 1974 from L.A. to New York. And, and see, while sports and the running was the hook there, what really was behind it was his effort and quest to fight world hunger. He, he did the run specifically to say, hey, I'm fighting world hunger, bringing attention to world hunger. But what most people didn't realize is he was using that to show that he had this product, i.e. the Forex formula, that could be used to power that run, and this is a, a low-cost product that could actually be used around the world in helping to fight malnutrition and world hunger. And so when he did that, it brought amazing attention. And one of the first people um, who at that time was very much into civil rights, was very much into human rights, was none other than Muhammad Ali. You know, many people who um, are are fans of my dad will remember seeing pictures of him running uh, across the country. And it was, you know, signature in that time. It was a white T-shirt that he had and it said, you know, Dick Gregory's run or like fighting world hunger, something along that line. He had this white hat everywhere he would go. And for a good portion of that, the boxer Muhammad Ali joined him. During that time, Muhammad Ali was so impressed that he said, listen, Dick, for my next fight, I want to bring you in. And twice, Muhammad Ali brought him in. My dad used the Forex formula as the basis for, you know, revamping his whole training session. You know, I was mentioning to you the other day, you know, nowadays everybody has a physio and a personal nutritionist. Before there was any of all of that, Dick Gregory was that. And the first notable um, athlete at the world stage that he dealt with, worked with, was Muhammad Ali. And many people will remember that it was, was then because I was talking with my mom about this the other day. Um, Muhammad Ali was in the mid seventies. He had lost his title. 
he was going for a rematch, and he brought my dad in. And without a doubt, uh, the next fight he won, got his title back. And, and my dad actually ended up working with Muhammad for two of his fights, of which he had amazing success. And that really started the platform for him working with uh, one-on-one with athletes. Yeah, because I, I remember, uh, I'm, I think, I'm trying to think it was uh, Rick Bowe. He worked with Riddick Bowe as well. <laughs> and Riddick Bowe was saying that Dick Gregory gave me some stuff. Man, I can't even repeat the words that Riddick used to describe. <laughs> he said, man, that stuff was awful. And he was just complaining. But then after a few hours, he says, I felt great. <laughs> yeah, I felt great, but just just going down your throat, man. You know, it took it took a while, but uh, yeah, he also worked with uh, Riddick Bowe as well. Do you remember yeah, that so, those fights? You know, that was, and then you know, everything there's a history to it, right? So around that time, through the through his association with Muhammad Ali, there was a young uh, uh, promoter in the DC area who was involved with boxing, who immediately. Uh, saw what happened with Muhammad, and that individual that many in the Washington, D.C. area know today was Rock Newman. So Rock Newman at that time was, you know, he had been uh, a baseball player at Howard University, was very involved uh, with sports himself, and got into promotion of boxing. Um, And earlier on, before he worked with Riddick Bowe, he worked with, I think his the biggest boxer he had worked with prior to that was uh, Dwight Muhammad Kali. He was like middleweight, cruiserweight, somewhere in that area there. I got very close to my dad. You know, growing up as a kid, I'm saying, you know, every week uh, uh, Rock would be calling the house, asking for advice, health advice, just advice about the world. And so fast forward about 20 years later, uh, early 1990s, Rock ends up getting this young boxer who uh, who's out of uh, Brownsville, New York, like Mike Tyson, who was seen as the future of the heavyweight division. But there was one issue, and you know he was he was known at the amateur ranks. He had came out of the Olympics. Of the Olympics, he ended up winning. I think it was like the bronze or silver medal. Ended up losing to Lennox Lewis, another future champion, and incredible power, six foot six. But the knock on him was he was lazy. And, and didn't like to work. And so Rock lined up the legendary fight, uh, boxing promo, uh, uh, trainer, Eddie Futch, but Eddie said, listen, you've got to show me your commitment to this. So young Riddick Bowe shows that, and then they start this career. So, you know, Riddick is, is working with Rock, but the thing with, with Riddick was what people didn't realize was that in between those fights, Riddick's boxing weight was somewhere around 240. But in between his fights, especially as he had more and more success, Riddick, the, the knock on him was true. He didn't like to work. He didn't like to work out. And so he would blow up to over 300 pounds between fights. And so while many boxers would spend their time in camp kind of, you know, fine-tuning, so much of Riddick's uh, time was kind of losing weight. And, but Riddick also knew of the association that Rocket had with my father. And Riddick always said, listen, Rock." When we get towards the championship, when we get our title shot, you're going to bring in Dick Gregory, right? He would say that over and over and over again. And so Rock kept saying to my dad, listen, we want to bring you in. We want to bring you in. Now, let me tell you this, Carl, and, and the, 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 the reason why, and as we go through these stories, one after the other after the other, that a lot of people may be saying, like, wow, maybe I heard one of them. I didn't hear the other one. 
Why is it that if Dick Gregory was so successful with this, why isn't this something that he did more of, especially now when you see that every major athlete has this, you know, celebrity nutritionist? And the thing about it was my dad was very clear, you know, he, his focus had always been human rights, health, and nutrition. He was probably of celebrities, maybe one of the people on this earth who was least impressed with celebrity. He was, and, and, and on top of it, he was very, very, very clear that he wasn't trying to spend his time babysitting anybody. Um, and so what ended up happening was every time, you know, a rock would reach out and my father would be very clear, like, listen, you know, I, when, when, when I bring people on board, I have a very strict regimen. And again, this was before everybody had these personal nutritionists and you had all these different labs or this, that, whatever. He said, I have a very strict regimen, and, and my batting percentage is 1,000. You know, I have 100% success. And so if you're going to go down this road, you've got to be 1,000% committed. I'm not just somebody out here that you can hire to come in and, and, and help be part of your team. If you want to be part of this, you've got to be 1,000% committed. And so when in 1992, when Riddick got his shot for the heavyweight uh, belt against the Vander Holyfield, about four months before that camp, they brought my. They decided to bring my dad in. So my dad literally gets out of the camp, and they were training in the Poconos. And he brought my brother Gregory with him to be there day in day out. Because clearly, you can imagine, 1992 at that point in my dad's career, he was traveling in a different place every day. So he couldn't commit to the two and a half months it would need to be in training camp. And so he would go in from time to time. He laid out the whole regiment, and he had my brother Gregory working there day in day out. Now, at that point, Carl, starting camp, Riddick was over 300 pounds with the fight two and a half months away. When they stepped Right. The and you have to say, hold that thought right there. We're going to take a quick break. Let you pick up the story right there, the training camp with Riddick Bow. Well, folks, you're going to hear some stories this morning about Dick Gregory through the eyes of his son, how he worked with athletes, not just boxers. We're talking about baseball players, basketball players, track and field. He worked with all of them. So if you want to join this conversation, if you know a story that we don't know, because sometimes you actually, people tell him stories about his dad that he didn't even know, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. We'll take your phone calls in four minutes after the track after the track after the traffic and weather update right here in baltimore on 1010 wolb and in the dmv on fm 95.9 and am 1450 wol where information is power Good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour, on with the, you know, Hansi Gregory, uh, Dick Gregory's youngest son. He's giving us some insight and in some of the stories that you're going to hear about Dick Gregory uh, concerning athletics. We know what he did for civil rights. We know what he did for comedy. We know, we know what he did in all the other areas, health. And this is part of what he did for health, too, working with uh, a lot of athletes, not just boxers, but we're going to talk about uh, some track and field folks as well, or, or some basketball players and baseball players that you may not have known. So yeah, Hansi's going to share those stories with us. Before we left for the traffic and weather update, he was telling us about the, were the Riddick Bowes training camp. So, Johansson, you can pick up the story from there. Absolutely, Carl. So, again, like I said, it was uh, the fall of 1992, and my dad is uh, uh, joins Riddick as part of his camp for his preparation for his first ever shot uh, for the heavyweight title. He's fighting uh, Evander Holyfield in November of that year. So, he goes out there with my brother Gregory and again, they met with a guy, young guy who's uh, again over 300 pounds, 
uh, less than three months in advance of his heavyweight fight. So there were two things that my father, or actually three things that he knew he needed. And he, and he told and he told he told he would tell me the story over and over and over again. He sat down with both uh, Riddick and his manager, Rock Newman, and said, "Listen, I don't know anything about boxing. I can't teach you how to throw a better right hook or a left uppercut. But what I can do is this: first and foremost, I'm gonna take the weight off you." And he would say that to everybody that he saw that would over that was overweight. He's like, "Listen, I can take the weight off you. I can do that in my sleep. But what I need to be able to do." is to, one, take that weight off of you without diminishing your strength. Because Riddick's claim to fame, you know, you have some boxers that were known as, as great boxing skills. Others uh, that were known for their stamina. Riddick was known for his knockout power. In fact, up to that point, similar to a Mike Tyson, so many of his fights had never even made the distance, hadn't even made it past the fourth round because he was knocking cats out left and right. You know, in fact, to this day, um, Evander Holyfield, when interviewed and asked, who's the hardest puncher you ever fought, most people would think he would say Mike Tyson. Without a doubt, every time he says Riddick Bowe. And so that, so he said, you know, I need to be able to take this weight off of you, one, without being able, without any, losing your, your, your punching power, and without losing stamina. Because one thing that was known about Holyfield, and to this day, you know, he, his nickname was the Holy Warrior, Evander would fight to the last breath. So he knew that he had to be able to prepare him not only to go late into the fight, but to be able to go 12 hard rounds. So he said, I have to take the weight off you, be able to keep you without losing your stamina or your strength. And he said, the other thing I'm going to do is I'm going to be able to increase your ability to take a punch. And so that sounded like pie in the sky. Now, Prior to that, what you know, with my brother being there, one of the things that's memorable for us, Carl, is growing up because my dad was not just working with um, uh, uh, athletes, but other entertainers for a whole host of reasons, health reasons, many of which were discreet and way off the books, particularly with helping people fight substance abuse. On a regular basis, as a family, we were his workforce. So he had, when he was working with Muhammad Ali, literally, he had an assembly line of vitamins, minerals, and nutrients that all 10 of the kids would be lined up packaging together. We put one of these, one of these, one of these, and we'd have these little, uh, like, paper Dixie cups and, and, and put these into, like, daily uh, plastic bags to send these huge product, uh, uh, packages off to Muhammad when he was training with him. So, you know, here comes uh, Dick Gregory in the Riddick camp, and he brings in, literally, he brings in uh, another nutritionist, a cook, things, every aspect of his health and nutrition, everything that went into Riddick's mouth, my father was adjusting. So it wasn't just, here's this powder or here's this shot or something like that, which, you know, which he would never be associated with, every aspect of it. And I'll be honest with you, for a young kid from from growing up in poverty in, in Brownsville, Brooklyn, New York, Riddick was not too happy about it because... You know, you think of right now when you try to give a young kid something healthy and they're completely turned off. And Riddick would complain every time my dad would sit down and make these smoothies or this, that, whatever. And he would try the best he could to make it more tasty for him. But at the end of the day, he's like, listen, you, you brought me in here not to, uh, not to be your personal chef to make, make things that, that taste good to you, but to be, put you in a position to win this battle. So fast forward two and a half months. Uh, uh, Riddick Bowe, that was three, about nearly 320 pounds, two and a half months prior, 
walks into the ring at the lowest white weight he's ever been at, at 235 pounds, 235 pounds. Even the, 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 the broadcasters couldn't believe it. And immediately while they said, wow, he said he looks amazing, there's no way he could have lost that much weight that quick and still be able to stand up to the, to the test that Holyfield put up to him. And for those who know boxing history, the rest was history. Literally, uh, Riddick ended up winning by decision. But what turned it around was him defying logic because the bet was, Riddick by knockout early, Holyfield by decision. Not only did Holyfield win, uh, did Riddick win by decision, he turned that fight around because in the 10th round, literally, Evander came out, thought it was going to be his round, and Riddick just, I mean, just tore him apart, knocked him down twice in that round. People thought the fight was going to be stopped. And it's funny because after the fight, um, and this leads into a, a, another uh, area, another athlete that my dad worked with. You remember Riddick, I mean, uh, uh, Holyfield was from Atlanta and very much part of the Atlanta social uh, athletic scene there. One of his close friends was the baseball player Otis Nixon, who played for the Atlanta Braves. Now, many people who know and are familiar with Otis's career know that he publicly uh, battled substance abuse for a good portion of that. And at one point, uh, and, and again, I don't need to be curious. Uh, this is, I don't know how he got associated with my dad, but he did. And literally his career was on the ropes. He had been suspended multiple times. And they said, listen, Otis, you know, if you don't turn this around, you're, you're going to be permanently banned from baseball. And so he made a last a ditch Hail Mary effort call to my father, brought my dad in to work with him exclusively uh, on fighting substance abuse. And anybody right now can go and Google and just look at the praise that Otis Nixon gave my dad for literally helping him to get clean and saving his career and giving him, I think it was another five plus years. And so Otis, I mean, just he, in, in, in that time, because, you know, not only is my dad worked for health and nutrition with him, but he's pouring everything that comes with Dick Gregory. And he became this huge Dick Gregory fanatic. And so he was in the corner there, not physically in the corner, but a good friend and there at the fight with Holyfield. And so after the fight, Otis comes out, finds my dad and says, listen, man, I want to bring you back to the locker room to talk to Evander. So this is after Riddick is won. He goes into the locker room and he's at the dressing room, the dressing room with, 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 with Evander. And my dad had never met Evander before. And so he said, listen, Evander looks at him and he said, Dick, he said, our whole plan was to take him to the later rounds because we knew he would be weak and we would be able to take him out. He said, but when I went up and hit him in the 10th round, he said, it was like hitting a brick wall. He said, I don't know what it was that you gave him. He said, but whatever it was, it was literally like I was hitting a brick wall. And so, you know, after the fight, the media can't stop talking about, you know, my dad's role with it. And then there was another, uh, you know, regular nutritionist and, and not uh, a, a physio, uh, a sports health guy, um, Mackie Shellstone, who's literally gone on to be one of the most infamous worldwide sports uh, health scientists that was working with Bo at the time. Mackie got extremely upset because all of the attention was going to my dad. And people just couldn't, couldn't believe how much weight Riddick lost how strong he was, how healthy he was. And so, and, and people who had the background of knowing what my dad's work with athletes were, were blown away. 
Now, fast forward to the year later, and they have the rematch. But in the rematch, kind of that leading out of that, Riddick didn't decide to work with my dad again. Uh, and a large part of it was, you know, he was now he's the heavyweight champ. He's a multimillionaire. And quite honestly, he would say this. He did not like having to take all of these different uh, nutrients and minerals and supplements. In fact, the main drink that my dad used with his 4X formula as the base to it, uh, which was just amazing, and other boxers in the camp, in Rock's camp, who, who were there with him, because like, my dad was giving it to everybody, was just marvelous. So they said they were almost could see their fingernails and their hair growing overnight and just full of energy. Sometimes they couldn't even sleep because they were just full of energy. And so Riddick was just so, so uh, turned off by it that he ended up calling it maggot juice. And I'll never forget my dad saying, yeah, you know, but that maggot juice got you a heavyweight uh, championship belt. And again, like I, like I mentioned before, my father wasn't in this business of being a personal trainer to be a babysitter or to, to try to make a career off it. These were people that had a personal relationship with him that brought him in because of his particular skill set. And so he said, listen, I'm not, I'm not here to tolerate that. So he didn't end up working with him the second fight. Riddick thought it was going to be an easy rematch, maintain the belt. Riddick ended up coming into that fight about 15 pounds heavier than he was the first fight. And never forget hearing this as well. Otis Nixon, once again, friend of my dad's, friend of Evander Holyfield's, was there for the rematch. And so he goes out about 30 minutes before and realizes that my dad wasn't there working with Riddick. And, I, and he goes back into the dressing room for Holyfield and he says, listen, Evander, he says, you got it. He says, Dick's not with him this time. You got it. And lo and behold, uh, Evander Holyfield won that rematch. So, so yeah, very, very interesting experience there with, uh, with Riddick Bell. Wow. Thanks for sharing that story with us. We're coming up on a break. And Mark in Baltimore has a question or a comment for you. I guess there's Johansson Gregory. He's the youngest son of Dick Gregory, sharing some insight. His, uh, his dad worked with a lot of athletes. We got to get to track and field, uh, also uh, uh, football, baseball, uh, basketball. <laughs> we, over, we got the baseball. We got the basketball players, too. So anyway, we're we going to take a short break and uh, take our first look at the news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. We'll be back in four minutes with Johansson Gregory right here in Baltimore on 1010W. WLB and the DMV were on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. Good morning again, family. Thanks for rolling with us this morning. It's 21 minutes away from the top of the hour with Johansson Gregory. That's Dick Gregory's youngest son. He's sharing some uh, some stories with us of his dad working with athletes. Before we go back to him, though, I uh, just want to remind you that coming up later this morning, we're going to hear from Dr. Clinical Psychology, Jeff Menzies. Also, uh, financial advisor, J.B. Bryan, is going to be here. And later this week, Brother Amde from the Watts Prophets who will tackle the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. He says the difference between rap and hip-hop, he's going to explain. Also, Professor Professor Manu Ampin will join us. Some of you know him as the man who uh, figured out that the the, uh, the, the uh, Willie Lynch letter was a fake. He did that. Everybody was quoting the Willie Lynch letter. He, he looked at it and said, hey, man, this is, not, this is not true. This is a fake. Also, activist uh, uh, Sinclair Skinner was going to join us as well. So if you're, in, uh, D- if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010WOLB. If you're in the DMV, run FM 95.9 and AM 1450WOL. Mark's online, too, has got a comment or a question for you, Hansi. Mark, good morning. You're on with Johanse Gregory. Uh, yes, uh, good morning. And first, I want to wish you and all the listeners a happy Jewish New Year. The year is 5784. I hope it's a sweet year for all. Uh, my question is, 
our young people in general, not always, but a lot of them are getting into trouble. And I'm only speaking because I live here in Baltimore. We have a lot of young people, as even as young as age 11, getting involved with carjacking and the like. So my question is, uh, what type of influence can we do? I know some of these uh, younger folks have uh, sports skills, but they've never been tested or never been utilized to the fullest. So what approach can we do to reach out to these people who are young folks on the margin, as we say, so they can be not only show, not only uh, uh, reverse their behavior, but also be a positive influence in their families and in the communities, you know, through sports. And it could be boxing. It could be uh, baseball, basketball. But what, in general, what is your wisdom to, in this type of approach? Thank you. And wish you all shalom. All right. Thanks, Mark. Yes, uh, uh, pleasure to speak to you, Mark, and have the call. You know, when it comes to when we look at what's going on with our young people in our community, you know, again, going back to the years, the decades in which my father would speak about improving situations in our community, we have to realize that this didn't show up overnight, right? These young people, look at what we've done within our communities that I've allowed to have happened, stripping away. Our schools are a shell of what they were. I, I tell people all the time, you know, my father went to a decrepit, broken-down school that was literally hundreds of years old by the time that he went there, Sumner High School in St. Louis, Illinois, segregated school. However, the brilliance that was turned out there, we had teachers, administrators that were committed, that lived within our communities, doing this, athletic coaches, all those things. It's not just about sports. Sports is an avenue, but my dad would say this as well. You know, so often we look to sports and we look to athletes uh, to kind of be the, the panacea and to save everything. He said, what other group of people do we know that we would consider in power that look to athletes in sports as their saving grace? Think about it, right? Anytime there's a, a world crisis going on in Ukraine right now, right? How many times have you saw somebody run and put a microphone in front of Tom Brady's face and say, hey, what's going on with the war in Ukraine? But when something's going on in our community, we'll go to Charles Barkley, right? We'll look to Michael Jordan. We'll look to all of these other sports uh, uh, figures and athletes trying to save us. So really, the, the, while, while, while athletics can be a larger part of that overall social picture, we're looking about fixing what's going on in our communities, and we're looking to sports and athletes to, to save that. That's our first problem right there. We have to make our communities whole again. These young folks. They're not demons. They're not terrorists. These are young people that have been left to the side, that have been lied to, that have been put into a school system that has literally been controlled not to raise them to be their absolute greatest that they can be. We go into the average public school right now, right here in Baltimore, Maryland, or anywhere in any urban city where we see our young black folks. Look at the C1. How many black teachers are in there? How many black males are in there? You realize, Carl? When my dad went to, when he went to high school, not only did every teacher have at least a master's degree, most of his teachers had a Ph.D. His track coach, Dr. Warren St. James, had a Ph.D. So what do you think he was pouring into him? Do you think he was pouring into him just how to come out of the blocks and this is how you improve your mile time? No, as an educated professional black man with a Ph.D., he was pouring life wisdom into him. 
sports happen to be around a, a, a that, but across the board, everyone in his environment was pouring something into him. So we've got to go back to literally supporting our young people, making our communities whole again, and pouring life into them, as opposed to just leaving them to the devices of a system that has no interest in them other than being expendable. Right. And, and the 15 away from the top, and Yance is saying that as an educator himself, that's his, uh, that's his trade right now, what he does. But I want to go back to your dad, because you know, there was an NBA player, and, and a, a, he was, he's going to remain nameless, and he was coming up for a contract renewal, and, but he was a weed head, and everybody knew that. Everybody, not only just in the NBA, knew it, just by the community, he was a weed head. He came with him, and then he called your dad. To help him because yeah. they, they said they were going to give him a test. And you know what I'm talking about. Without mentioning his name, tell us the story, Yahansei. Uh, uh, yeah. So, you know, as I was mentioning before, the 4X formula that my dad created in the early 1970s with uh, a number of health nutritionists, friends of his, was the basis for which he used for his own personal health when he ran across the country and it was used as a product to fight world hunger. What many people don't realize is that's what was the base of what turned in to be my dad's most successful product, which was the country's most successful diet product at the time, the Bahamian diet. But, you know, anybody who's, who ever heard an interview of my dad talking about the Bahamian diet, he would say the Bahamian diet, it wasn't a weight loss product. It was a total health product. But the FDA at that time would not allow him to market a product and sell it doing what the Bahamian diet did. So he had to put it under the guise of a weight loss, a weight loss product. But of the suite of products that my dad developed at, under the brand of the Bahamian diet, probably the most powerful one was one called Correction Connection. And Correction Connection specifically targeted fighting um, substance abuse. And in the early, in the, in the mid 80s, all the way through the 90s, my dad actually uh, went out to um, uh, uh, Fort Walton Beach, Florida, and he was there vacation with my mom or whatever, and ran into somebody who was who owned a uh, hotel that they were trying to sell, and it was a four-property hotel. It was sprawling right on the Gulf of Mexico, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. My dad, on the spot, going <laughs> out here, buys it cash, and he buys it with the intention of turning it into a completely free facility to help people who were morbidly obese. And so if anybody remembers my dad on the Donahue show in the mid 80s, having folks that were literally 600, 800, 1,000 pounds, he flew people free of charge to them to live in this luxurious hotel that he bought in Fort Walton Beach, Florida, that was strictly designed with full-time health nutritionists to lose, to, to lose weight. He also at that time developed a private facility about 30 miles away specifically to deal with individuals that were in the public light um, that, you know, that, to allow them a degree of privacy that were fighting substance abuse. So through my dad's connections with sports, uh, one of the people that he was very close with was basketball coach Dale Brown. And because for years, I mean, Dale, he, was, he was friends with Dale dating back to the 70s, uh, who was the most legendary coach at LSU and actually went out of his way because of Dale Brown, the SEC um, integrated its referee pool. They brought in many more black coaches. Even though Dale was a white man, he fought for these things within SEC basketball. And so through Dale, a lot of uh, referrals of athletes that need help, he would direct his way, both 
people that played at LSU and people who didn't. So there was this one athlete who, again, had failed drug test after drug test, um, but because he was a, such a big man, that he always had a spot in the NBA. But, you know, at that point, the NBA, just like all leagues, had a substance abuse policy that, you know, says if you get suspended X many a times, finally you're kicked out of the league. So he was literally down to his last, uh, to his last time, and he was referred uh, to my father. My father he brought him in, and literally, I mean, I remember speaking with him, the player, and again, like I said, he, 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 this isn't somebody who's been public about uh, his, his, his battles like, uh, like Otis Nixon was, so not to name any names, but he was completely blown away just in the first three months. And, and, and when I saw him, he had been working with my dad for six months, and he was just recounting. He said, you know, when I first came here, you know, I've been through so many 12-step programs, rehabs, and this, that, whatever. He said, I'm thinking it's just more of the same. He said, but when your father first gave me that correction connection, he said, I could, he said, just my whole body. And then he put him in a bath with different uh, uh, algae-based baths, uh, uh, sea algae-based baths, which he said, just the toxins that started pouring from his body. He, he, he was scared. He said, he called his mom and said, I got to get out of here. He didn't know what was going on. But just six months then, he said he was a completely brand new person, gave him a new lease on life and literally saved his career. Uh, and, you know, was able to go on and uh, play for, ended up playing for about 15 years. I think after that, played for another 10 years within the NBA. But to this day, he credits my father for saving his career and really saving his life. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> exactly. That's how it went down. 10 away from the top of the hour. we got another Mark in Baltimore. wants to talk to you, Yohansei. He's on line two. Mark, you're on with Yohansei Gregory. Hey, how y'all doing this morning? And, man, I just want to, you know, I, if people don't know your father, please Google him, uh, Dick Gregory. Uh, my dad was a big fan of his. And, you know, I didn't even know, you know, the, the part that him and your mother played in the civil rights, I remember um, here, uh, reading one time that that uh, uh, Carl he took her down south, you know, to a civil rights uh, uh, event, you know, where they where they had got locked up. One time she was pregnant, you know, and stuff like that. But um, here in Baltimore, I believe Dick Gregory would come here to Baltimore to because the Muslim brothers, Christian brothers, everybody. Uh, is is just doing some amazing things here in Baltimore, and the mark that called the Jewish guy, uh, because one of our leaders is uh, uh, Philip Leaf, Doctor Philip Leaf, and uh, we want to invite him today, guys, to uh, Mister Hood Cleanup as uh, an event, and it's going to be free, and the venue is 16th on the park. Residence in by Marriott, 800 North Wolf Street. We we want to invite you, Mark, and everybody else to come out. Um, we're going to have some organizations to form a movement against the social deterrence of health. This partnership is with for-profit non-state who have displayed a, commi- a commitment to equity and inclusion when engaging underserved urban populations in the Baltimore metropolitan area. So we want everybody to come. And it's from 6 to 9 p.m. tonight. Venue 16th on the park, residence in by Marriott, 800 North Wolf Street. And everybody, please Google Dick Gregory because he was an amazing man. Y'all have a good day. 
Right, thanks, Mark, and thanks for that information. We'll come up with a break here, Hansei. But when, when we come back, if you can briefly tell us about track and field. We're talking about 68 Olympics and, and your dad's role in that. Because most people, when they think about the 68 Olympics, we think about Tommy Smith and yeah. John Collison, and they're throwing their fist in the air and they got kicked out of yeah. the, the Olympic Games. But there's another story to that that most people don't know. And I want you to share that real briefly for us. Seven minutes away from the top of the hour, we're going to take another look at the traffic and weather in our different cities. Our guest is Johansson Gregory, Dick Gregory's youngest son, talking about uh, Greg and his relationship to athletes. Folks, you want to join this conversation, reach out to us at 800 800- 450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. Keep Good morning again, family. Minute after the top of the hour, Johansson Gregory, Dick Gregory's younger son. But J.B. Bryant is on deck. We're going to get J.B. the momentarily. So, Johansson, if you, quickly, briefly, if you can just tell us your dad's role in the 68 Olympics, John Collis and Tommy Smith. Yeah, absolutely. And I think two things that are uh, important quickly to my dad's legacy, not just playing sports and helping athletes, but really what he's known for, work with human rights. So, uh, you know, the world knows Tommy uh, uh, Smith and John Carlos for the protest that they did, the demonstration in the 1968 Mexico City Olympics. Some people know that they came out of that wasn't just something that happened overnight. They were part of the um, the organization, the Olympic Protest for, for Human Rights, and which was created by the, the infamous psychologist, famous psychologist from San Diego uh uh, San Jose State uh, in California, Dr. Harry Edwards. Dr. Harry Edwards um, was then and still is now, was a respected uh, PhD, was, had been an athlete himself, and worked with putting that bridge between politics and sports. So he was the one who created this organization, formed this committee, um, encouraging athletes to use their voice, particularly around the Olympics, to, on the world stage, to speak out against not only racism here, but apartheid in South Africa, you name it. So I remember my dad telling me, and it wasn't until uh, about a year or so after he died that I had the opportunity to speak to Dr. Edwards and heard it from his own mouth of where he got the inspiration to, to create this Olympic Committee for Human Rights. And he said earlier in the 60s, he was in St. Louis because there were the uh, track and field uh, uh, Olympic trials were in St. Louis. And who did he see? None other than Dick Gregory leading a one-man demonstration outside of the stadium, encouraging athletes to use their voice and demonstrate and protest and not go to the Olympics. Dr. Edwards said that planted a seed in him. And then four years later, when it was the 1968 Olympics, that he created that uh, organization. And I tell you, Carl, in so many ways, my dad, uh, it's like the movie Forrest Gump where he kind of shows up everywhere but <laughs> throughout <laughs> history and all these historical events. But even more than that, something that always kind of sends goosebumps down my spine. I mentioned earlier that my dad went to school on a track and field scholarship at Southern Illinois University. What many people don't realize is, is that as great of a runner he was, my, my uncle, Ron, was the first black person in the state of Missouri to actually hold the state title. Was it necessarily that he was the fastest that ever had been in history in Missouri? No. When my dad, in the late 1950s, he won 
for the state meet for the mile, and he goes to the library because at that point, every year, Scholastic would publish the list of, of, of state high school champions in all of the different uh, uh, track and field events. So he goes to the library because he had won uh, the mile and had the fastest time in the state uh, before, and he goes to look for his name. He doesn't find it. And the librarian told him, he said, oh, no. He said, Richard, if you want to get in that book, you've got to run against white boys. He had the fastest time, but he was running in a segregated meet. And so he was blown away. He was crushed. You can thank 15, 17-year-old kids thinking he's going to see his name in black and white. So he literally goes down to the Board of Education at St. Louis and leads a, a, a statewide, what turns out to be a statewide demonstration. Because of that demonstration, they actually changed the rule the following year to allow for Missouri to have integrated uh, 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 amateur athletic competitions, which allowed then my uncle Ron, who won, to be on record as the first black mile champion. But it goes even deeper than that. You know, you think of most people don't realize how far back my dad's activism went. Fast forward 10 years to the late 1950s, and there's this young tennis player coming out of Richmond, Virginia, who's amazing. And they say literally he could be the first black male tennis player to break the mold and, 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 and go through and, and, and be a top-tier professional. But there was one problem. In order to be nationally ranked, he had to play against white, uh, uh, white tennis players. He had to play in an integrated environment. Richmond, Virginia at that time was completely segregated. So his coach had a friend in St. Louis and says, hey, come out to Sumner High School. Sumner High School, because 10 years before, somebody we didn't know, Richard Gregory, led this demonstration, which allowed for the integration of, of, of amateur athletic competition in the state of Missouri. So he moves out there for his senior year, goes on to win the title, goes on to be the, uh, the first black male to be the boys' junior national champion. You know who that individual was? None other than Arthur Ashe. Literally, because of my father's work in activism, 10 years before, as a 17-year-old kid who wanted to see his name in that scholastic book, we see part of the legacy of Arthur Ashe, a young, brilliant, educated, amazing tennis player from Richmond, Virginia, relocate halfway across the country to Midwest, to St. Louis, Missouri, to go to Sumner High School because of a legacy that my father created there. Your Honcha, you need to put this in a book. I'm telling you, just because I know we, we've just scratched the surface of athletes, and then you need to do one with with entertainers, because many of the things yeah. that people, and maybe the next time we have this conversation with entertainers, many people don't know that uh, the, the, uh, the song "Imagine" that John Lennon did was yeah. inspired yeah. by your dad. You know, yeah. people, yeah. they think that, uh, you know, and people are probably playing in your head right now. Uh, imagine yeah. it, it, it was your dad who inspired. And we didn't even have time to talk about his work with the World Series winning 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates, Willie Stryker, Right, with the Dave Pirates, Parker, really, yeah. Those guys. yeah. We are family. <laughs> yeah, remember that. Yep, yep. Was, yeah, remember let's listen. the dugout with them at that time. And in fact, Dave Parker, I was five years old, Dave Parker gave me one of his bats, and the bat was literally almost as tall as me, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Man, what's some stories? Johansson, you got to do the book. I'm telling you, just do the book on sports, the Gregory on sports, and then do the book with Dick Gregory on entertainers because you know it's a lot of entertainers, especially, especially in his latter years, all these entertainers were following him around. Man, you've got to do that book. 
But I want to thank you for sharing the, the, all these stories with us this morning because a lot of people, you know, they think they know Dick Gregory. They really don't know him. And you shared some insight into your dad. So thank you for doing that, Johansi. Now, thank you for having me, Carl. Always love, always love being a guest on your show. Always love having you. Always love to the Gregory family. Thank you, Johansi. Will do. Right, thank folks. you. Have a great day. All right, you too. Let's keep moving on. J.B. Bryant, good morning. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. It is so good to hear that story. You know I'm all into track and fill now. <laughs> Yeah, a lot older than Dick Gregory was when he was running, but that is so good to hear. And then, plus, my base office is in Richmond, Virginia, where I started the firm as the first black-owned registered investment advisor in that area. So, wow, you know, what a connection unexpectedly this morning. He got me started, got me motivated, making me want to run real hard because, <laughs> you know, I had a, um, a white friend of mine who was talking about the integration of sports. It, it, he jokes about it, but it's true. Like he said, you know, I was breaking all the records, like doing everything. He said, and then all of a sudden they started integrating the schools and it was no more breaking any records, you know, for me. But he said, I found it to just be, you know, a beautiful thing. But, you know, you have to think about, how many people got skipped over, you know, and not recognized until, you know, we were integrated. And, and, and that is, you know, sad. That's sad, sad to say. But, um, you know, that when we look at integration, we really should think about, like, who were the pioneers that got our black athletes to the level and to the recognition that they have now? Like, look, I don't know if you've ever heard about this young black brother, Noah Lyles, he is an amazing athlete, and it is so good to see an American, you know, a young black man that is, you know, that is an athlete, but also a great businessman because of the work of Dick Gregory, really. Um, He's a descendant of that, and we need to talk about it more often, that there were pioneers that didn't get the chance to brand, didn't get the chance to have a TV show on Peacock, you know? Right. Yeah, it, we, of course, no Elijah, you've spoken about him quite a bit. In fact, we, yeah. we're supposed to come on here with us, but uh, maybe he'll do it now, right now that the season is over. Yeah, because it, it, was, it was during the season, it was in between meets. So he said after the season, so I, I'll, I'll just let you know when he does it, because before the season starts again, because oh, you know, next year is what, um, the Olympics you know, in Paris. That, uh, the financial yeah. advisor, J.B. Bryan, is a big fan. <laughs> I'll let him know. Yeah, that's I'll let so him cool. know. Yeah, because uh, it, 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 they're on a break now. As I mentioned, the, the Olympics and they have mm-hmm. been qualifying for the Olympics. They got two big meet track meets this set for next year. So hopefully, in between or before that, we can we can have a discussion about track and field with him. Well, I want to talk to you about money, uh, JB, because yeah. you're a financial advisor yeah. and. We see this inflation. A friend just called me yesterday. He said he paid six dollars a gallon for gas, and he's just and I told him I just paid mm. three th- high three eighty something for for a gallon, and that was premium. And, and he was regular six dollars a gallon out in L.A. And he, he so I told him I'd ask you, what can we do? Is there anything we can do? We, we just have to 
you know, as Magic Johnson always said, you got to sup it up, bro. You got to sup it up. Is that what we should do, JB? Is there anything at all we can do with this runaway inflation? Look at the prices going skyrocketing. Do, do we do we buy the products early now and stock them or what? What, what do you suggest? I'm glad that you brought up the topic of necessities. And I think that that's the key message here for us is that this is not a, a low-income problem. This is a, a the bulk of people surveyed that were making, you know, over 50,000 and even the people making over 150,000 noted that they're disp- they're depending on paycheck to paycheck to pay their bills. So, we definitely need to make sure that we you know, are setting up uh, priorities that we decide, like, this is important to me, uh, you know, that I have to buy gas, this is my budget for my gas, and then these other things um, are going to have to take a back seat to me getting into work. And, you know, even reviewing things for their affordability, you know, are, are, are these the things that, that you have to have? And to see your life just like a business owner, uh, a lot of people, or just like a business, I should say, um, run your life like a business. Is this expense necessary? Is this expense costing me too much? Um, you know, is this an, a necessary trip away? Do I really have to, um, you know, do these home improvements that, that we've been doing? A lot of the debt, because there's over a trillion dollars in credit card debt now. No, people uh, who work every day are relying on their credit cards in alarming numbers to make their ends meet. This means that we're not living within our means. Anytime that we have a credit card balance, that is not a good thing. That means we bought something that we really can't afford. And, and we're, you know, at, according to research, that we're going into debts, especially the example they use is that people are not putting any money down, like of any substantial any substantial amount on their purchases, major purchases like their homes. So when you don't put a good down payment, twenty percent, that's a good down payment because somebody's saying, "What's a good down payment?" If you're not putting money down, then you're putting yourself at more risk for foreclosure because there's no equity there going into the debt. So we're, we're almost using mortgages like we're using credit cards, and so I think that the key to feeling better going forward for everyone, high income, moderate income, low income, is to learn to live below your means, not just within your means, but below your means. All right. Hold that thought right there, JB. We've got to take a short break here, take the traffic. And when we come back, a friend of mine told me, he says he never does any major purchases at this time of the year or get his car fixed or anything like that or you upgrade the home. He says people are always trying to beat you at this time of year. They're always trying to look for you to get, make their money for their Christmas presents. So he says he, to ask JB if that's a good strategy. So I'll let you respond to that question when we get back. Folks, you want to join this conversation with JB Bryant? Reach out to us at 800 450 
7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here after the traffic and weather in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. 21 minutes at the top there with financial advisor J.B. Bryan. Before we left for the traffic and weather update, I was telling about this strategy that a friend of mine had, and he told me to ask J.B. what she thought about it. And the strategy was that uh, this time of the year, he doesn't do any home improvements, anything that he can put off, major developments, spending money, because he thinks this is the time everybody, the, the, it, the rates go up. Everybody who you ask, even if to mow your lawn, they want more money. She says, I'll just hold out till about February. And he says, that's his strategy. He want to know what you thought about it, JB. Yes, uh, the the holidays need to be appreciated for what exactly they're for. You know, the holidays are for loving on your family, um, going back to the things that really matter, like focusing on the 10 principles of Afroeconomics with your family. Someone um, want a free ebook that's listening right now, just email me and I'll give you the free ebook. And then you can share it with as many family members as you want at the holidays. <laughs> but we have to focus on giving empowerment, giving resources, not, you know, material items. I spoke to a sorority over the weekend and I know that my message was very different than what was expected, but when we're talking about um, you know financial wealth and developing a legacy, the legacy has to be focuses on us leading through our life. And on Sunday, I had a workshop called "Lead with Your Life." So when he's doing these responsible things, it doesn't matter if society is not, uh, you know, saying, oh, you didn't come and, you know, buy enough gifts at the department store, you know, over the holidays. You know, that's not his responsibility. What his responsibility is, is to be of great character, take, make sure that you pay the bills and the, th- the loans that you ask for, take care of your responsibilities. So it's, it's bigger than it's, it's big. The holidays are much bigger than the simple gifts that we think that we should be giving. We need to be giving a lot more. Give of your time. You know, give a commitment to the health of your family. Start, start you know, investing in, you know, more time together, healthy conversations, the mental health uh, and, and, and the growth of just the time together over the holidays, you know, could, could save someone's life in your family. A phone call, you know, um, on the holidays, going to nursing homes and seeing your ancestors, you know, ancestors, you know, seeing, you know, those who are alone and, and not well taken care of, you know, emotionally, go invest in that. So, because we're skipping over that, and we need to to stand by what we know is right. If you're going to do it, and you're going to come out of the holidays financially healthier, don't expect it to be easier to to be an example of what is right. It's just not easy. And but over the long term, like you know, I don't know if you saw, but the government has admitted that HBCUs are owed 13 billion dollars. And it makes me think of, you know, my father spent his entire career working and being an administrator, and his Ph.D. was based on um, historically black college and universities, you know, that we it, – if not, as in the as same as Dick Gregory's son said, you know, if they had not committed 
to something that is not acknowledged during the time when it will benefit them, but they're investing in the betterment of those that come behind them. And now, finally now, the HBCUs are saying that they owe their owed, not the HBCUs because they've been asking for it, but the government is admitting at least $13 billion. And what makes me really think about it is, is that because, you know, Jeff Bezos' wife got that money in the divorce, and now she's been putting her foundation, been putting money into historically black colleges and universities, you know, is this making the government, like, uh, saying, oh, well, we should admit this, or is this their way to go around, you know, overall reparations, or is this the beginning of the, a serious look? at the money that is owed to the black community that was promised on so many levels and we didn't receive. But this well, let me jump in here and ask you this, though. though yeah, uh-huh. let me jump in and ask you this. That's interesting that you just mentioned, JB. First, quickly, are you broadcasting live on social media? Then I, yes. they have a question. Okay, so folks, look, look up JB on all social media platforms. But the question you mentioned mm-hmm. that, that the government says that they owe HBCUs all those dollars. Is that, do you think people will say that, that there goes your reparations as part of reparations? How do you think folks will see that? It's it's totally different funding, though. Extremely different funding. You know, that there there was a a statute, you know, that was given, and I I have it because I did. I was like, this is amazing that they're finally bringing it out. I mean, my, oh my, you know, there was land grant, they would call our schools, Historically, black colleges and universities have missed out on more than $13 billion they should have gotten in the last three decades or so, according to the letters the Biden administration sent to governors of 16 states appealing to them to invest more money in HBCUs. Now, that's too damn broad. But you can't ask people to do something that they were already supposed to do. You can't ask the states to to do what they've been told to do by the government. That is just disappointing to even say, you know, appealing to them to invest. No, no, it's not an investment. It's paying people the money that they owe when immediately it is shared on every form of media that people, that students from HBCUs don't pay back their student loans at the rate of majority schools. This is the root of it. But many people will say, oh, no, but if this was a majority school and they were owed even one, $1 billion to one, it would be a tragedy. This is an extreme tragedy. And, and just well, to, well, let me jump in and ask you this, then. They, they admit that they owe it, but are they going to pay it, J.B.? The states haven't admitted that they owe it. The government is saying that the states owe it. No, so now he's asking, instead of mandating, that the states give the money that the, they were supposed to give. You know, that, that, so they went to you know, our education secretary and agri, um, agriculture secretary also sent letters to the governors of Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, South Carolina, North Carolina, Texas, Tennessee, Virginia, and West Virginia, that they all have letters saying, that they have data from the National Center of Education Statistics that found the gap 
and funding could have supported the infrastructure, meaning he could have paid my father and all of the other people who spent their entire careers there, they could have paid them much more, and they know it. And student services and would have been better positioned and would have better positioned the units of university to compete for research grants. So you have the schools that can't get money to pay PhDs to do the research that they need. So our PhDs have to go to other schools way too often because there's no grant money there. Right, thirty minutes out of the top there, and JB, the, the states that you mentioned, though they're all red states. Those are the states that are, th- yeah. th- uh, are considering curtailing Black history. Now they're they're being told by the federal government they owe these Black schools money. Do you think they're going to just pony up their money just like that? They're going to have to if the administration does the right thing. Because if we owe anybody, what do they do? <laughs> So you either take the money back from the state or you penalize that state in some in whatever however you penalize states and put the money with the HBCU that was to get the money and then pray to God that the HBCUs do the right thing and provide some education and some training for our students even just make sure that more students get the support that they need so that they can come to the schools. If not, you know, you're going to find that all the funding is going to go to the community colleges. The community colleges are growing. Great. That's fantastic. But you have a whole institution of employees. You know, so we have all of these people going to school to become educators. Then they work at an HBCU, and you've been punishing them over the last 30 years. They're not getting the salary equal to other schools because they haven't been given. You haven't, the states haven't been supplying the money that the government mandated. So, well, hold on, though, right there, JB, because here's the other part about it, too. And I can see your picture now, folks. JB showing off her tan lines there on TV oh, so you can watch on all social media platforms. But JB, <laughs> JB, the, the, uh, a lot of the, on the Republican side, one of the departments they want to abolish, they want to do, totally do away with the federal government. But one of the first ones they, they want to abolish is the education department. They want to get rid of ed, ed, They don't think there's a need for a, a federal education department. And you're talking about that would be the department that would have to oversee them, the government mm-hmm. paying back this money to the black schools. What, what, your thoughts about all that? Yeah, that would be a simple Simon move if we allow that to be done. You know, that we know that we need the education department to be noted. And we have to have a department that says it can't be like over the Department of Interior and then it it falls down to education. When we have an education crisis in this country, it is directly connected, especially for our community, that education and training is everything to our ability to take care of ourselves. We can't allow that to happen. We can't have, you know, any administration that does not support education and training being the future of this country. That is why people come from other countries and are able to prosper in our education system because education in their country is so much more important. 
No, and especially especially for us, I, I, you know, we ha- we have to to make sure that we vote for someone that agrees that training and education and advancement of your education and, and knowledge, you know, it doesn't have to. When we think of education, we have to broaden our view of it because education also includes teaching our young people to be plumbers, teaching them to be electricians, teaching them. And so when you have an education as it's not important, only the rich can get it, you know, to to break, it's just as important as having a director of, you know, health services and health care and, you know, and having, you know, making sure that everyone gets affordable health. We have to make sure that everyone gets affordable training. And when right, I hold that thought right there, JB. I also want everyone yeah. that knows that their their school loans are starting back at the top of October. Don't play with yes, that. Yes, yes, uh, yeah. Hold that thought right there, because yeah, I hate to talk. We're talking it. finances, but we're talking about politics, JB. We got to take a right. short break here when we come back too, because they're also threatening to cut Social Security. That's safety net for 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 many people who are listening right now, and and you know sometimes they'll deny, it, but they've they've come out openly and say they want they want to cut Social Security because they say the money's not there. I want to get your thoughts on that as a financial advisor. If that happens. What sort of advice would you have for folks who are listening to us? 26 minutes away from the top of the hour. As I mentioned, we've got to step aside and get caught up on the latest news, traffic, and weather in our different cities. Our guest is J.B. Bryan. She's a financial advisor. you got questions about money, saving money, what to do with your money, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB, in the DMV on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Hey, good morning again, family. Thanks for rolling with us this morning. 20 minutes away from the top of the hour with financial advisor, J.B. Bryan. She's a financial expert. you got questions about money, how to save money, what you do with money. It's a lady you need to talk to. Again, the number is 800-450-7876. Before we go back to J.B., though, let me just remind you, come later this morning, we're going to speak with Doctor of Clinical Psychology, Dr. Jeff Menzies. And also later this week, Brother Hamande is going to be with us from the Watts Prophets. He wants to talk about the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. He says there's a difference between hip-hop and rap. He's going to explain that. Also, Professor Mandu Ampin will, will join us as well, and activist uh, Sinclair Skinner will also be here. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WOLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. So, JB, we, we started talking about politics and, and money and talked about the fact that the $13 billion is now owed to the HBCUs. They figured that out. The question is, will they ever get that money? Because we, we have a, one party who said they're going to do away with the education department, don't want to do away with the entire federal government, but some have uh, pointed out the uh, education department. Now we have a, 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 some other folks on that in that particular party want to do away with Social Security. That is a safety net for many, many elders uh, who are out there now, worked all the time, that's their money. It's, it's not borrowed money. It's, it's not a loan or anything. That's the money they paid into the system. And now we have some, uh, one particular party th- saying that, we, we, that, it's, that we can't, the government can't afford it. They need to do away with it. What did you say to your clients if they have those kind of concerns? I I believe that we can't um, be concerned about what might happen down the road as much as make sure we focus on maximizing using the system that's in front of us. You know, maximize the use of all of the resources that aren't there, like um, Social Security, as you had mentioned. People worry about Social Security might not be there in the future. We cannot, 
you know, be anxious about that. We have to instead make sure that we maximize when we are supposed to take it out. When is it best for you to take it out? And you would be amazed at how many people never talk to a financial advisor about when to withdraw the Social Security. And it is probably because we're not working with advisors. We work and spend too much time with salespeople. So if you don't have, like, uh, you know, Afroeconomics is born to allow us to have an advisor that focuses on advising. That's what registered investment advisor is. So and your, your Social Security, when you take it, when you shouldn't take it, when is the best time for me to take it, are valid investment advisor questions. And I address it all the time. We think it through every step of the way. And I tell everybody that's listening, get yourself on the books. No matter how what your age is, go to ssa.gov and set up your account right now. Right now. Anybody in your family paying into Social Security, go in there, set up your account, look at what your estimates are immediately because they're not sending it out like they used to. We used to get something in the mail, you know, showing showing our age, right, Carl? But we used to get something in the mail that would tell you, where, you know, you've worked this long, you qualify for this. And, right. you know, a lot of people call that 800 number not knowing that they're not qualified and they haven't put enough number enough years into Social Security. You know, while they're in their 50s, you can correct that. They may not have your W-2 from your employer over those years. You might have worked somewhere and they weren't reporting, you know, your income. So you've got to find out what they have on you. Go to their SSA.gov. The money we put in the system is going to get paid back to us. Let let me jump in and ask you this, though, uh, JB, because as an advisor, is is the I I take it that's not one size fits all. When you deal with individual people, you have to deal with their circumstances. If if you're telling them whether they should take it earlier or late, how does that work? That's right, because, like, there will be someone, you know, easy example is someone that has a chronic illness. You know, a chronic illness, and the reason that you're able to get your um, SSI disability income at a higher amount, unfortunately, is because your life expectancy is compromised. So they don't expect to have to pay as much for you down the road so they can give you a bigger check now. That's the way the logic of this actuary system works. So when you're, you're healthier, you're go, you know, your anticipation is that you're going to live longer. So if you get to 62, you're not disabled, but you have several chronic illnesses, you know, and you're not working full time anymore. You know, you're, that's what the Social Security is for. And I think a lot of that 62 decision for many people should just be based on are you working because if you're working and you take it at 62, then that they will take back some of that money if you make over, now it's like $20,000. Some people go past that quick. So they're going to take back your Social Security, so there's no reason to even start it if you're still working part-time at the right job that pays well or uh, full-time for sure. 
it's so you have to consider these things. When is my full retirement age? You know, when am I going to stop? Even every year that you don't get it, like you don't have to start at 62. You might quit working at 63 and a half. Well, what will that check be at 63? Go into SSA.gov. They'll give you that type of information. We start planning with it. It's your, plan, it's your financial planning tool for the majority of us. The Social Security income does make a difference. All right. Let me jump in here at 13 away from the top of the hour. What about people who are joining the, the job market right now, JB? Their first job, just got out of school. They start working. Well, they've been on it for, in their early 20s. There's no guarantee for them that Social Security will be there when, when they get their retirement age. What sort of advice do you have for those folks? That's right. And they, they need to realize if they're withholding Social Security for you and they're doing that for everyone, your employers taking it out, you're putting money into the system, you're going to get that money back. No. Now, if we don't get the same uh, early retirement age, early retirement age might change to 63. Early retirement age might change to 61. Like um, and from many stats, people aren't living as long. So, the, um, you know, because of after the pandemic, but so there are, um, if you are in a job that is withholding Social Security for you, and we're doing about 7.5%, your employer matches 7.5%, 15% of your income, you know, matched by them, like that 15% of what you're making is going into that. You're at minimum, we're going to get that back, or we're going to have to go. <laughs> Look, they'll be like, J.B. Bryan said storm the Capitol, but that you know, would be a, a, a serious challenge, and we should not expect that type of time. But as far as like funding, there is a challenge, and they'll have to pull it from other areas. It's anticipated to like run out of current funding by like 2030. And a lot of the problem is they haven't done proper investing of the money. They've tried to be extremely conservative with the Social Security fund. So we have to you know, realize that that's a, that's a note that everybody needs to notice. Talk with an investment advisor and make sure that you are investing correctly for your long-term future because the cost of things – just like with Social Security, they had to give an inflation raise. You want to save your money over the long term so that as your as expenses grow, you can increase your income from your assets as well. That's the type of thing that I do all the time. And you know that um, one of the um, lovers of your show, Cynthia Howard in Pittsburgh, she said that she gets an annual statement from Social Security and the reason why she looks she up there telling too much of her business is because she qualifies. So the note about they don't send out the statement is is for us young folk, Ms. Howard, <laughs> who don't qualify yet. So once you get to the age where you're eligible but you're just not taking it, they start sending you the statements again. Or All right, you'll get the yeah, Here's where I'm going, JB, a 10 away from the top there. I mean, we can help us out with this one because should we have a separate savings account 
a separate, a separate sa- a retirement savings account then? Because we never, we don't know what's what's mm-hmm. going to happen. I mean, this is for the young folks now who just start working or be or mm-hmm. in the twenties and thirties who who, who mm-hmm. some time off before they qualify for Social Security. If they, because they'll probably change the age requirement again before they, they try to get rid of it, because that's what they're trying to do. But how can they set up a, a personal retirement fund? What what do you suggest? That's right. You can set up if your job, which we're more likely to work at a job that does not have a 401k or a TSP or deferred plan for our retirement savings, the IRA, we can set up easily. We can open up the investment, your, your individual retirement account, and then you can write that contribution off on your taxes. So it's not done as easily through your paycheck, but we can definitely set up where it is a draft every week, every month, whatever you want the draft to be, and it can go into an IRA. We have to remember an IRA is not an investment. So if you have an IRA somewhere and they are not licensed to actually put you in investments, then you're limited to what they sell. So my clients, if they get an IRA with Afroeconomics, then you are able to do stocks or bonds, mutual funds, ETFs, you know, anything that is a real regulated investment. Um, so we have to remember that IRA is not an investment. It is a type of account. What you do with that IRA is based on where you get your help. So great, great you know what, point. You know, we're, we're talking about, about you know, we come up on a break, and maybe when we come back from the break, you can address this, because, you know, the auto workers are on strike. And mm. one of the things during the, the pandemic, they took away their pensions. You know, they, we talked about savings. Mm. We're talking about folks now elderly getting ready to retire. Then, hey, you, you don't have a pension. One of the things they want reinstated is their pensions. Ooh, is, yeah. this a big yeah. de- is this a big deal? Because we you're talking about 401ks, which is administered by the, the people mm. that you work for. But I'm, I'm suggesting that is there a, a separate fund that you can control without the, the, the people who you work for, without the government, Social Security, that you that when you retire, that you have some money, that you have, you know, your own safety net yeah. instead of relying on your job and, and, and the federal government. So I'll let you address that when we come back from the right. break. Uh, seven minutes away from the top of our folks, our guest is financial advisor, J.B. Bryant, giving us some tips here what we can do because, you know, Social Security is, is on the siege now. The, the Republicans are, are trying to wipe it away. And it was, we saw as I mentioned with the strikers out there in, in Michigan, the the uh, the UAW, one of the things they want to get back is their pensions that were wiped out because of the the pandemic. So, what are your thoughts? Eight hundred four five zero seventy eight seventy six. To speak to JB, we'll take your phone calls in four minutes after the traffic and weather and the news in Baltimore, right here in Baltimore on ten ten WOLB. Also in the DMV on FM ninety five point nine and AM fourteen fifty WOL, where information is power. And good morning again, family. A minute after the top of the hour, momentarily, we're going to speak with Congressman Maxine Waters from Los Angeles. Uh, Congressman Waters is going to preview the annual legislative uh, conference for the Congressional Black Caucus. It starts tomorrow in Washington, D.C. We'll hear from uh, Congressman Waters momentarily. But, J.B., I'm going to let you uh, respond to that question that I asked you about. 
if, is there a, a personal account that we can set up real quickly? If, if the Social Security, it, it, you know, if the Republicans go after Social Security, especially for our younger people now, and they eliminate Social Security, and if their pensions are gone, like we saw with the auto workers because of the pandemic, what sort of account, if you briefly you could tell us real quickly, what sort of account should they create? And the account, well, I don't think that, um, you know, that they're right in the people who feel that they should not want their pension back. Like, I was just reading an article, and the economist was like, oh, we, you know, don't bring the pensions back. The pensions really should have never stopped. And they think that that is okay to just get rid of the pension because they want to put more of a match. So if they put the match, if they put the match in as a major component, you know, then that will allow them to, you know, actually the match will have more, the, the actual worker will have more of the responsibility of making sure that their retirement is taken care of. Not even more, they'll have all. So if you, so that's why we see more and more corporations moving away from having the pension because they're not responsible for your financial future anymore if they can get you to buy into, okay, we'll put six percent into the 401k for you you know before we only put four we'll put six percent and then you can choose any investment that you want and matter of fact we'll hire some advisors and you can pay them to help you so that we don't have to do this anymore and then so look at all of the responsibility that's been taken away from a corporation that you've invested your entire career in and that's yeah. the challenge, Carl, that they're moving back. And even municipalities are moving back. Like you see states and counties and, you know, all of them that want you to put some money into your pensions now. Right. So, and we're going to yeah. ask, ask Councilman Waters those questions, J.B. Before yeah. we let you go, though, how can folks reach you? Yes, and, the, and I'm glad that you have a, um, Congress you know, um, woman coming in because this is big. This, you know, it's a big deal, especially that the, from a federal perspective, and we have so many members of our community that are relying on the federal government. If we have an administration that comes in and cuts back on federal jobs, it is going to impact the black community, black wealth in a major way. So thank you for having her on, and thank you for taking our future seriously. Contact me at one eight eight one eight four four J B Bryan one eight four four five two two seven nine two six. My assistant is at her desk at nine, so call anytime, any night. Leave a voicemail. We're not answering, you know, at that particular time, but get the information that you need. And then, you know, if, if, if you call and you have a voicemail, which happens a lot, and it is full, call, please call us back. <laughs> All right. Know, my concern is like, Carl, how can I call you if your voicemail is full? You have no right. idea that this black business actually did call you back. And if you email me and say that you're from Carl Nelson's show, email JB at jbbryan.com my name jb at jbbryan.com 
and say, JB, please send me the free book. Here's my number, my email, and my name. And that's all we need. Number, all right, good email, and your name. Yeah, and get Thanks, that JB. free book. Uh-huh. Get it. Thanks, JB. Thank we got to keep moving because we got Dr. Jeff Menzies right. also on deck waiting for us. Congresswoman Maxine Thank Waters, good morning. Welcome back to the program. Amen. Congressman Waters there? Kevin? I'm not hearing Congressman. Uh, Congressman Waters on line six. Congresswoman, are you there? I'm not hearing her. All right. Uh, well, let's let's go to Dr. Jeff Menzies. When, you, when the congresswoman gets to the phone, let, let us know, uh, Kevin. Jeff Menzies, good morning. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well. We're waiting on the congresswoman Maxine Waters. You know, the Congressional Black Caucus are having their annual legislative conference begins tomorrow in Washington D.C. downtown, uh, the uh, uh, at the convention center downtown. So and she's she's uh, hosting an interesting panel down there. So we want to hear what she has to do. But let's get started until she gets ready, because I know you want to talk about relationships. And they're talking about role reversal because we were just talking about money and money is a big deal when it comes to relationships. But is, is that the biggest before we get into the role reversal issue? Is that the biggest problem uh, for, for relationships? Is money the biggest issue? No, I wouldn't say that money is the biggest issue. I would say that money is a major issue, though, and, and definitely our perspective of, you know, where the money is supposed to come from, how it's supposed to be used. I think the communication is the biggest issue. Uh, being able to hold a, 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 a conversation, you know, in good faith, you know, conversation, actually hearing each other, comprehending what the other person is saying, and not necessarily listening just to react. But money is definitely up there at the top of the list, Carl. All right. And, and you talked about uh, role reversals. It says it's causing, re, uh, causing all sorts of problems with the relationships. Can you explain uh, yeah, that? Yeah, for sure, man. Because, you know, like we're talking like with the uh, with the money piece. So, and one in one respect, men are expected to be, you know, the provider and the protectors of the home and of the family and of their of their partner, right? We all know that. We've all heard that. Uh, and so, and that that comes from a time to where, you know, if we if we depend on who you're talking to, you know, the the origins of that expectation, you know, is going to be either good or bad. It's going to be because women were limited and weren't allowed to work, uh, and then you know, women received quote-unquote rights and now they are able to work so they no longer men no longer have to be that protector and that provider of the home but then on the flip side of that you know you'll see that there's still this expectation you know for a man to be a provider and to still have money and definitely to have quote-unquote more money than his partner it's you know we talk about a man and a woman being together and so when you have these expectations and then that dynamic and that moving of the goalpost then what you create is tension within the relationship because now we have this concept called dating down. You've heard of dating down, right, Claw? Uh, all right, you there? Uh, Dr. Jeff, I heard somebody on the line. Yeah, I hear something in the background, too. I don't know what that is. I'm actually, let's see. If, is that line six, Kevin? Is that the congresswoman's line? Oh, all right. Okay, let's continue until she's ready, uh, Doctor Jeff. So, but you say, is this is is this more prevalent in our community in in the black community though the, these issues? Well, what I could I could I could speak more to it occurring in the black community, but I think that the man as provider 
is is a general thing. You know, I think it's across the board. I think it crosses all racial and cultural lines. I think that it, the dynamic within our community is different. Uh, I've heard plenty of people talk about, for example, uh, uh, how how white women they go to college, you know, uh, to find a husband, and and black women go to college to get a degree, so they won't so they won't need a husband. You know, and so we get this different dynamic. You know, we celebrate this idea that you know black women are the most educated, uh, the the most educated, they're, they're the most employed. And then I was, you know, I was speaking about a little bit earlier about this concept of dating down, where now, you know, women are, some women are speaking about this idea of dating down and how they refuse to do it. And, you know, and that concept of dating down deals with a woman dating a man that makes less than her or a woman that dates a man who has, quote unquote, less status than her. And then that creates a whole nother relationship dynamic, because, again, that expectation for a man to be a provider is still there, regardless of how independent. And, uh, and 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 not need the man. Some some women right. say that they are. And, and hold that thought right there, uh, Doctor Jeff. We will get back to that in a moment. As I mentioned we're uh, trying to hook up with Congressman Maxine Waters, and I know she's traveling and doing a whole bunch of stuff at the same time. Good morning, Congressman I'm, Waters. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm at my destination. I was doing it in between while I was driving. <laughs> um, we'll have to nope. do it another time. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Let's we'll we'll hook up with Congressman Waters later. But uh, Doctor Jeff. Let me ask you this question, though. Um, the, the fact that, that, that with, with the women's movement, how has that impacted how uh, our, our, the sisters see themselves? Or not all of them. We've got to mention that we don't see everything in absolute. There's changes. So how, do, how does that impact the, 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 the feminist movement? How has that impacted the sisters, how they see themselves these days? Right. Real quick, Carl. You notice how we always have to do that and say, well, not all of them. We <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's like right, the only right. time that we have to put that disclaimer out there is when we talk yes, about sir. men, True. women, specifically the women. Well, not all. We have to we have to make sure we put that out there for some reason, Carl. <laughs> and I just want to point that out. Uh, but yeah. you know, when you look at when you look at the women's movement, uh, you know, depending on what part of it you're talking about specifically, but uh, I, a lot of our a lot of my elders have told me when I'm listening to them speak about it more intelligently than I ever could. They always point to the fact that uh, black women were co-opted into a white woman's struggle, and, and they were brought in uh, believing that there, there were same and similar interests, same and similar struggles, and so that by aligning with what, women, what white women had set out to fight against, that black women would also be empowered and strengthened in that process. And you know, in true white supremacist fashion, you know, it was there was a back door, right? There was there was an ulterior motive there, and which was according again to my teachers, uh, this, this intentional separation and a wedge being driven between black men and black women, uh, which then of course impacts the, the family that comes from black women, black family comes from black men and black women. Uh, you know, I always want to go to the book of Weldon, if you don't mind, Carl. <laughs> no, Dr. please. Weldon about, Dr. Weldon wrote about this way back in 1974. What are we talking about? Almost what, 50 years ago. Isn't that amazing? She said, it's on page 87, it's in her chapter on black male passivity. Uh, she says that under the white supremacy slavery system, the identity of quote-unquote sex machines was imposed upon black males, especially as many hands were needed in the fields for toil and labor. The many babies that were produced gave black males their most open avenue for at least a limited sense of manhood. Presently, with the birth control pill and the pressure of population zero for all non-whites, this major male ego support also has been taken away. Without jobs, income, power, even babies, there is no proof of sexual functioning. 
when this reality is coupled with the awareness that many women can receive more from a welfare check or college degree or job, I'll put that in there, than they can from their male partners, the reason for women respecting men and saying and staying with them steadily declines and black male female alienation increases. So then she goes on to talk about single head uh, single parent households headed by women. And during 1974, when she wrote this, it was 34 percent of black families are headed by females. That's compared to 10 percent of white females. Now, nowadays, it's more like 70 to 80 percent, Carl. And so that thing has jumped up so high to where we have people, children being raised in households without men. So they never had the experience of respecting men or even seeing what a respectable man should look like or function, how one should function. And then you get to the world uh, being to- raised totally independent of manhood of any type of male authority, uh, except for like police officers and maybe a manager or somebody at work. And every now and then a principal at school and maybe a teacher. Uh, Let me jump in and ask you this, because we come on a break, and, and maybe you can respond to this when we come back from the, the check in the traffic and weather, though. this Is it that by accident or by design? What you just mentioned, what Dr. Wilson, you know, highlighted in her book uh, that, that's happening to the black family, the breakup of the black family. Was this, was how did that dynamic come about? Was was it orchestrated, or is it just, you know, it just sort of evolved? I want to get your thoughts yeah. on that, Dr. Jeff. Folks, you want to join this conversation with Dr. Jeff? We're talking about male and female relationships reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, or information is power. And good morning again, family. 21 minutes after the top of the hour with Dr. Jeff Menzies. Dr. Jeff teaches, is a clinical, doctor of clinical psychology, teaches at Morgan State. And we're examining the black family, the breakdown and disintegration, if you will, of, of the black family. And my question to him before we left for the traffic and weather update, was this, was this organic or, or, or is there a hidden hand that's, you know, trying to break up the black family? Uh, so, Dr. Jeff, what is your research showing you? This is definitely an intentional uh, occurrence. It's, it's not natural or organic at all. Um, but what happens is like I, I use this analogy in my book, Dumb It Down. When you, if, you, if dominoes could talk and if a, if a row of dominoes had been set up in a line and then somebody flicks the first one and it knocks down the entire row, if you ask that third domino who knocked you over, it's going to say it was the second one. It's going to blame the domino that actually fell into it. And they don't necessarily, they aren't aware, they can't see the person that stacked them up in the row for the intention of knocking them down in the first place. And so now it seems to be so far removed and that our, and our attentions have been focused in so many different directions that we don't see the actual setup that occurred. And you could trace it, of course, back to the plantation being plantation prisoners or enslaved uh, Africans. You know, you could take it back to the middle passage. You could take it to colonialism. You know, there's, there's a, there's a systemic process that has been in play for a while that is designed to put that rift between men and women, specifically black men and black women. And somebody said, well, why would anybody put forth efforts to do that? You just have to simply follow the statistics after that. Then you see like, wow, you know, broken homes, quote unquote, broken homes are big business, right? It, it produces uh, it, it produces children that are more likely to engage in the criminal justice system, more likely to engage in substance use and abuse, more likely to, to do poorly in school and need other types of services. Uh, more likely to be violent, more likely to c- commit criminal acts. You know, it, it's very lucrative business, and not to mention divorce. Like if the parents ever, were, you know, were married, divorce is a major industry. I mean, and not to mention a very good retirement plan for some people. And so 
you've got all of these different factors that are playing into the intentional disrupting of the black family. And it, it does it does spawn from white supremacy, the need to to dominate non-white people globally. And then it also has a very lucrative economic arm to it as well. All right. 23 at the top of the air. Money Mike's joining us. He's in Baltimore. He's online, too. Money Mike, you're on with Dr. Jeff. Yes, Dr. Jeff, can you tell me what the probability currently is for black women to be married? Because uh, I so, think it's about 30%. Can you give me an answer? Yeah, the, the, the ballpark that I hear about is between 25 and 40% likelihood of, yeah, of being you, ever being married. Now, can you explain why? Why hold that thought, Mike, 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 hold, hold that thought there. Doc, you, you mentioned that figure for black women. What, is it different? Is that different from any other women, uh, from women, period, though? Uh, are the sisters yeah. not getting married? Does it show up uh, larger when you compare it to other women, other races? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, so black women right now are some of the least likely to get married amongst the, uh, the entire population of women. Wow. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Mike, I'm sorry. I just had to ask that question, but go ahead. You follow up. Okay, my follow-up is, is, Doctor, why do you feel black men don't currently want or desire to be married? So the women, I, I, think I understand that the women desire to be married, but I can tell you my thesis. I believe black men feel inferiority when it comes to economics, when it comes to making decisions, and therefore they don't want the headache or the burden of, of somebody asking them something. The wash machine's broke. The drive's broke. They can barely take care of themselves because of economics, and they don't want that, that challenge, that burden. They want to just say, I don't have it. I ain't got it. I ain't got it. And that's from my take. Can you give me yours, please? Yeah. And so I, what I would say is that black men do want to get married. I do. I mean, men do want to be married, from my understanding. The conversation I've had and the things I've read, Men want to. What you speak on is absolutely true that some men, even in their desire to be married, have those concerns and have those real life problems show up. Like if they can't, if they aren't financially stable, is what I was mentioning earlier. That whole concept of quote unquote dating down or marrying down, you know, because again, that we have this expectation of men being the what providers for their family and providers for their home, and if if the economic system is designed to suppress a black man's ability to earn a, a living wage, then yes, it's going to be a, a stress. It's going to be a stressor on any relationships that they're, that they're able and capable of in, in, engaging in. But I do think that black men want to be married. But I, I, I was thinking that you're going to go somewhere else by asking about the percentage of the black women being married and, and why, you know, why do I think it's such a low rate? That's where I thought you were going with that. But yeah, that's, that's my response to that question, brother. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. All right. Yes, well, let me follow up on, on Mike's question, though, uh, Dr. Jeff. Have, yeah. have the brothers bought into the negative stereotype that they hear about sisters? Because, you know, that it's out there and, and some of these, especially some of the younger brothers are, are talking uh, negative, calling them out of their names. And, and as, as, a, uh, as a group of them bought into that, that lie about our sisters. So, so Carl, so what's, what's the lie that's been bought into? 
you know, that they're loud, abrasive, and the other other women are easier to get along with, and they're, they're always arguing. You know, the, the, the typical stereotype, loud. You know, the, the typical stereotype that you've heard about black women, especially on the younger end. Right. So let me let me let me borrow a phrase from the uh, from the wise philosopher Carl Nelson. Not all, <laughs> but many of the many young brothers have that real life experience, Carl. Uh, I think we had, we had spoken one time before and this came up and uh, there was a sister that called in and talked about her son not wanting to date black girls. And when she asked him why not, he said because they're loud, they're aggressive, they're mean, right? Remember, he labeled, he listed a whole bunch of stuff for his mother. His, his mother, she said her heart was broken because not only was she uh, uh, realizing what her son had to face and had to deal with, but she understood also like, dang, this is real. A lot of our young sisters are carrying themselves this way, and they're being raised that way by older sisters who act that way as well. So it's not a total lie. It just doesn't apply to everybody across the board. But a lot of that is from the socialization, the popular culture, popular culture socialization. It's like when a person feels unseen, they have to do things to get other people's attention. And one of the best ways to get somebody else's attention is to be loud, right? It's to, it's to be aggressive. It's to be assertive. It's to be recognized. You see me. You hear me. You cannot deny that I'm present. And so a lot of times that comes from that concept of vacant esteem. And, and it happens with boys, too, but it happens in a different way with boys. You know, we aren't necessarily going to be loud like that, but we might take on that aggressive part. You know, we might take on that assertiveness. Like, you're going to see me. In fact, I'm going to find a way to make you fear me now that you tried to erase me. Wow. Uh, let me ask you this, because I know you know that uh, Dr. Newton segment was working on uh, she's, re, re, I guess, re, uh, looking at what, what happened in the eastern shore of Maryland, where they where we were just like animals. You know, they bred us like animals and, and the residual effects. Uh, mm -hmm. That's why uh, she, she claimed that many of the sexual confusions you see with black folks. And she was trying to what she's trying to do was, was put it together. The people, especially the people who were in those those uh, how you come farms, if you will. Uh, slave farms uh, and and their descendants, their DNA. That's why she says she was trying to prove that that's why so many of us may be sexually confused about our gender, who we are and what we are, the male and female, because they bred us like animals. And I'm just wondering if if, if you looked at that, if, if if any of that, what she was trying to say, that there's a residual effect in black and male and female relationships because of that. So yeah, so that forced breeding, that, that was a part of what I just presented from the ISIS paper, too, is uh, that forced breeding, right? And when they when they forced the breeding on these breeding plantations or these breeding farms, you know, what they yeah, they would breed relatives, right? So, you know, they had they had a stud or, or, or a buck who they would use to impregnate the women on the on the plantation as the, from the first buck, from, from Menarch, from their first menstruation cycle. And they didn't care much about what the relationship was biologically, uh, as long as they could produce strong, you know, offspring that could withstand the, the torture and withstand the heinous conditions. Now, what we do know is that, you know, the whole forced breeding and uh, the forced sex, because all of that is sexual abuse, right? The the, the stud as well as the, the, the women that are being bred, you know, everybody's being sexually abused in that context. And so when you have generation upon generation of people you know, sexually being sexually abused, you know, and producing offspring through that abuse, who are then themselves being raised by people who were sexually abused, who then themselves eventually become sexually abused, and that vicious, vicious cycle like that, you 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 have to expect sexual confusion to be within that population, you know, throughout, and and, and until that's addressed and acknowledged, 
you know, we will continue with certain sexual confusions and issues with our, you know, with our sexual expression, uh, with our ability to be intimate with one another, uh, our ability to have proper roles, you know, within our family units, or Dr. Wells will call them survival units. So, yes, all of that is a major, 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 major intergenerational, transgenerational trauma that many of us are still experiencing to this day, especially when you look at how popular culture is continuing that, continuing that ideology. But instead of producing offspring for the plantation, we're producing offspring for the prisons, right? And so they have these broken homes. They got these breeder mentality, you know, that they've never, we never healed from it. And so they exacerbated, build it up some more with, with this popular culture showing, you know, sisters producing songs like WAP and talking about her, you know, this one is brown and that one is pink and, you know, all these other things. And then the brothers are standing along the side talking about how their sexual prowess is. So it's that same breeding plantation mentality and behavior, except for we just in the hood now. Right. And, and instead of the plantation farming and picking cotton, we're in the prisons. Oh, wow. <laughs> Twenty nine away from the top of the hour. Got a tweet here. <clears throat> Twitter says my girlfriend's 16 year old told his black mother and his black father isn't they black women because black women are loud and angry and the person has it now he didn't grow up in a household where he saw it it's from his friends and, and this young man is, is you know he's, I guess peer pressure I guess we're reading from that uh, tweet but how much does the music industry and entertainment industry have to bear for all of this I've often said Carl that, that popular culture is the marketing tool for white supremacy it's the marketing tool for every outcome that white supremacy needs to have in order to maintain its position of superiority on this planet. And so when you look at hip hop music, if you, if you took uh, uh, an artist's lyrics, like, you know, let's say some of, our, uh, some of our drill rappers or some of the gangster rappers, if you actually took their lyrics and, and just believed that they were confessing, almost everything that you hear in almost every song that they, that they play is going to point to something that's going to land you in prison or is going to land you in a cemetery, or, or, or both, right? And so it's a marketing, it markets these behaviors. And we, we like to pretend like it's just music or it's just entertainment. But psychologically speaking, man, this is well-known. You know, the, the level of influence is well-known. We have these models of learning, operant conditioning, to where you know you, a, a behavior that is rewarded is more likely to be continued or imitated. Behavior that's punished. And, and hold that thought right there, because I want you to drill down in that when we get back, because we got to take a short break and check the news, traffic, and weather. If if so, is, is that by design or by accident? Is is it just you know who, who's creating this music? Why? Because we, we and another question for you, Doctor Jeff: To other races, do, do they have their their people, their their youngsters putting the, the, the Chinese, the Asians, the uh, Hispanic? Do they sing this kind of song? It's about their their uh, females, the women in their their and the, females. I was told not to use females because they sound like like uh, cattle. So <laughs> you're right. So let me let me check. Yeah, let me check myself personally on that one. But uh, women, Dr. Jeff, explain that to us because, you know, we don't know, we don't listen to their music, we're not in their culture, but is this is this what society is today or is it just our segment of the society, the black segment? I'll let you talk, to explain that after we get caught up on the news, traffic, and weather. We're back in four minutes with Dr. Jeff. If you want to join this conversation, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. Also in the DMV, on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. 
And good morning again, family. Thanks for rolling with us. 19 minutes away from the top of the hour with the Doctor of Clinical Psychology, Dr. Jeff Menzies, teaches over at Morgan State, discussing relationships between our community. And before we go back to that, let me just remind you, uh, Brother Hamde from the Watts Prophets will be with us uh, later this week. He wants to talk about the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. Professor Manu Ampim will also join us, and activist uh, Sinclair Skinner will be here. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure your radio's locked in tight on 1010 WLB. If you're in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 w, uh, WOL. I've got a bunch of folks want to talk to you as well, Dr. Jeff, but I'll let you respond to my question, because we don't know. We kind of think that it's just our group of young people especially young brothers who, who refer to, to women in, in a derogative way, call them out of their names, and also call them females. Dr. Welch says, yeah, that's part of it, too. It reminded me, call, don't call our young women females. They're women and young ladies. Females make it sound like they're livestock, and this is what the, this is what the, uh, the oppressor wants us to do. This part of the conditioning to, to, for our young people. So I want you to answer that question, too. Is, is, in the, the rockers, the, the country music folks, are they doubting their women as well? Or is it just our, our young men? And so, so Carl, I'm not I'm not as deep off into those other uh, genres of music as I am, of course, hip hop, R&B, and, and you know our classics. But uh, what I would say is that even if it does exist at the same rate, it's it's not within the same culture. You know what I mean? So it's, it's a different overall context within which that happens. So let's say it's an exact number, the exact same ratio of men speaking badly to, about and towards women within those other genres of music they exist within the system of white supremacy, just like hip hop does, or just like R&B does, or the black culture does. And so they're still gonna have other options. So for example, a, a young lady being called out of her name in the white culture, you know, by some white song, by a white musician, you know, she doesn't have the same environmental pressures that will make her adopt that identity so quickly and also see pride in that identity the same way that some of the black and brown cultures do now. Uh, so for example, you know, you might have white you might have white women who are musicians who sing or rap or whatever who might self-identify in those same ways. But again, the context within which they exist is not going to reinforce that and make the little girls think that that's the only option that they have or one of the most viable options that they have to be successful in life, to be respected. You know, to get wealth, to get to to get a partner, a life partner. You know, whereas in our culture, these women are held up in the highest esteem. You know, they get they got the largest bank accounts. Let them tell it. They've got, they've got so much popularity. They've got the largest followers on social media, all from presenting this persona. And so, again, even if it is the same in all of these genres, it's different because of the system of racism, white supremacy, and it's going to impact non-white people differently. Yeah, I'm going to come back to you later on that because we saw what Jan Wenner did for Rolling Stone and what he thought about uh, black yep. artists. And, yeah, I want to talk about it in a moment. But Mantu's waiting for us. He's calling from New York City. He's online, too. Mantu, you're on with Dr. Jeff. Yes, yes, uh, greetings, Hotep, uh, to, to you brothers. Um, Dr. Brother Menzies, um, have yep. there been any studies on uh, long-term marriages that last in the black community, meaning, um, you know, anybody who's any, uh, any information on our couples who have n- never had a divorce or who have stayed married for 10 years or more? Is there any information available on that? Yeah, so there there are some longitudinal studies that have looked at, you know, who follow couples over time. Uh, and what you're finding now, though, is that those that, that length of marriage, you know, and matrimony without divorce 
has slowly started to decrease. And so you, you, don't, you don't have as many couples now who have 10 years in the game anymore. I think they said the average amount of time right now is maybe six to seven years uh, from marriage to completion of divorce. Uh, so if you want to look at those, those, those studies where people have maintained marriages over long periods of time, you're going to have to go further back in time. And when you go further back in time, you're looking at a different context now. You're looking at a different, you know, different circumstances, a different situation, uh, a different understanding of what marriage is, different understanding of how we relate to each other as men and women. And so it's, it's a very tricky topic to really get some good data on. Right? I mean, the data does exist, but the, the nuances that contribute to our understanding of that data is what has to be uh, sharpened a little bit. But, yeah, the studies do exist. But what you're going to find, again, is that the, 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 the term of marriage has decreased, that the terms of average marriage has decreased now. And it's steady on the decline, so much that even marriage itself is on the decline, where people aren't getting married as much anymore. Okay. Uh, let me give you this kind of comments, question type of scenario thing. Um, let's say you could time travel, right, hypothetically, and you wanted to save the black race. What would you tell them about marriage? What would I tell them about marriage? Yeah, uh, if you wanted to save keep, the black keep, race, keep, you keep, I got, I got, you, I got the question. I just wanted to make sure it's about marriage. What I would say about marriage is keep doing it the way that we've always done it, and don't let people change the way that you do it. You know, but I mean, if I wanted to save black black race, it would it would be something other than marriage that I would talk to, talk about. That's why I said about marriage. Uh, I would um, tell them, you know, when them, when them Europeans show up, fight to the death is what I would tell them. <laughs> as soon as you see them right. cats, don't let them off, don't let them off them boats, and if you do. It's only to take them out. I got you. Oh, All right. Appreciate you. Have a good one. <laughs> All right. Thanks, man. Too. Uh, 14 away from the top. Yeah, let's keep rolling. Let's go to Baltimore. Fields on line three. Field, good morning. You're on with Dr. Jeff. Yeah, uh, good morning. I, I have an aspect of this that nobody seems to be talking about. White supremacy certainly might involve some devious tactics. But what I notice now is that white men are marrying powerful black women. Katanji Brown-Jackson, yes. Kamala Harris. And this was yes. brought to me when Kristen Welker, for example, now she uh, not only powerful black women, she's also powerful. She's the face of a face of the nation now. And I looked into that. She's married to a white man. In fact, she's biracial and she, and she claims to be biracial. And she's married to a white man. And I'm wondering, is this some kind of a movement being made by white men to dilute the power of the black community? by marrying powerful black women. And I do want to point out that even Pete Buttigieg, I'm talking about first husbands, he's Maltese in the background, and yet he's married to a European. So I just wonder if you could comment on that. Who's moving where? Are the white white males looking to marry powerful black women, or is the alternative happening that, that powerful black women are selecting white males? Just, just a question. You know, Kamala Harris, makes a big deal about the fact that she immersed herself in the black culture because she's half Indian. She immersed herself in the black culture, attended a black school, went into black sororities and so forth, yet she married a white man. I'm wondering which way is that movement going? And if it's white men uh, uh, seeking out powerful black women, I think that's an aspect of white supremacy. I, I'd like your opinion on that. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Leo. <laughs> yeah, he brings up a, a very interesting observation, and it has been talked about. Dr. Wilson covers it in the ISIS papers as well. Uh, but there's this 
there's this, according to the ISIS paper and Dr. Wells' theories, there's this, there's this desire uh, for black women by white men. Like white men desire black women the same way that uh, white women desire black men, according to Dr. Wells' theory and her, and her discussion. Uh, and so when you look at, like he's talking about the powerful, quote-unquote powerful black women, you know, being with white men, he's wondering which direction is that occurring in. And I would say that it's probably dual. It's probably bi-directional. Like both are seeking each other out. Um, it's, and, and, you know, it's really interesting because you'll find, uh, I can't think of what that movie is now, uh, but you, you find, like, if you go, let's go over to just, let's go to Georgetown, Carl. Let's go down to Georgetown real quick. And what you'll find oftentimes is, you know, African women uh, pushing white babies in strollers. You know, they're au pairs or they're nannies or whatever they are. They're, they're caregivers for the babies. And that's something that's been happening, you know, since plantation days. And what you have are white male children, right, babies, who used to suckle, you know, at the breast of black women. You know, that was where they were wet nurses. And they were being raised for, nurtured, you know, loved and cared for. And some theorize that that desire never went away. You know, that, that affinity and that affection that they felt at the hands and at the breast of a black woman, it never goes away. And it's always a desire to return back to that sense of love, that sense of support, and that sense of strength. And so and if it's going from white men to black women, then that may be the source of that movement or that desire. Now, if it's going from black women to white men, it's, of course, because they see that they have this status. And it's what I talked about earlier, Carl, the dating down concept. And so if you're somebody like Vice President Kamala Harris, then, you know, you, you, if she wanted somebody on her level or higher you know, as the vice president, you know, where is she going to go? She's going she gonna to steal Barack from Michelle? That ain't going to happen. So, you know, and so if you're looking status-wise, it has to be a white man in the white supremacist culture. But isn't, uh, if, back to Phil's uh, premise, isn't it the same thing with successful black men? Many successful black men marry white women? Yep, they absolutely do. And it would be the same dynamic, the, the, the status, the structure. And also what we talked about earlier, the quote-unquote stereotypes or their experience with black women. Right. It may not they might have not had the best experience with black women. So they figure that as soon as they can get status enough to get a woman of higher status, a.k.a. white, you know, then they're, they're definitely going to do it as soon as they can. And when a man reaches a certain level of status, a black man reaches a certain level of status, he becomes attractive to non-black women on a different level and to a different degree. I mean, look at look at young G's and Jenny Mott, you know, who, who, who are in the process. He just filed for divorce against her, you know, and I'm pretty sure that. Young Jeezy was only with, you know, black women, you know, of the hip hop culture, you know, type of presentation up until Jenny Mai, you know, and he got him Asian woman and, you know, two years, they lasted two years and he filed for divorce. And, and my, from what I've been hearing and what I've seen is because, you know, she, she was basically abusive, verbally abusive, you know, and he wasn't going for it, but she was previously married to a white man. And so she said she didn't even realize how verbally abusive she was until she got with Jeezy. And then she said he wasn't going for it. He would check her, basically. Wow. I, I just, well, that begs the question, what's love got to do with it? You know, I've talked to, spoken with a lot of uh, interracial couples, and, and they tell me they're in love. And I'm just Ooh. trying to figure out, you know, the, the question, what's love got to do with it? Are they, what is love? Can you define that for us? Can you help us break that down? Because that seems to be... That seems to be the, 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 you know, when you say, why are you with this person? Why not with this person? Why are you dating out of your gene pool? Well, I, it did. I didn't deliberate. I wasn't looking for Miss Ann. You know, it, it, 
it, it came, it hit me like a thunderbolt. <laughs> I, I felt it, and I'm like, wow, that, that never happened to me. I don't know about you, Dr. Jeff. And I'm just wondering for these brothers that I talked to who are now in interracial relationships and they say they have it, so it's all about love. But we got a break coming up. If you can break that down for us, what is, are they denying something here? Or are they saying something that, that's hard to express about being in love? Uh, uh, it's, it's, it's got nothing to do with what we're talking about. It's all about L-O-V-E. So if you could break that down, because I know you're a counselor. You, you, you do that with your couples. You counsel them, and I'm sure you've had some interracial couples as well. And, and I'm sure that comes up. So if you can share that with the audience who haven't been down that road, we really appreciate it. Folks, you want to join this conversation, reach out to us at 800-450-7876. As I mentioned, we got to step aside and get caught up in the latest traffic and weather and the news in Baltimore. We'll be back in four minutes, though, with Dr. J and your phone calls right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB in the DMV run FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL or information is power. Good morning, Doctor Jeff. I'm getting so many tweets, but brother, but let me tell you something. I'm gonna get on your couch today. Doctor Jeff is a doctor of clinical psychology. This is what he does. He counsels uh, 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 counseled couples as well when they have uh, problems. They go to see Doctor Jeff. He teaches over at Morgan State. And before we left for the break, I was telling you about the, the people that I've the young the brothers that I've spoken to about you know interracial relationships, and they, they tell me, "Oh man, you're getting too deep. It's, it was love. I fell in love." I said to myself, I've never, and check me when I'm saying this, folks, I've never had that feeling. I've never saw, seen a, a, other than black women that, that, that I'm attracted to. So maybe something's wrong with me. So, Dr. Jeff, you got to help me out right here because they tell me that they <laughs> fell in love. Explain, yeah. Can you explain that for me? What, what, are, what are they talking about? Because they couldn't explain it to yeah. me either. They said it was a, a natural yeah. attraction. And yeah. I've been yeah. around white women, but I've never, I've never had that desire, that feeling. So maybe I'm the one who's, who's uh, has a problem. So, so Carl, a lot of times when people say that they fell in love or is love at first sight, they're talking about a physiological response. You know, something moved them physiologically. They literally had a feeling in their stomach. Their heart began to race, blood began to rush in certain places, specifically the sexual organs. You know, and it, when you, if, let's say for example, if you're a person who has been seeking love all your life, seeking attention, wanting to be acknowledged, wanting to be uh, desired, wanting to be intimate and close to somebody, not even just sexually, but intimately close with somebody. And let's say that you haven't had that. And then somebody comes along and they're paying you attention. They begin to love bomb you. You know, they, 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 they love bomb you. They sex bomb you. I mean, you, you're getting all types of attention, closeness, intimacy, touch, care, concern. You know, then people would say the feeling that's the result of that type of experience, that type of uh, uh, interaction, people call that love. When in reality, it's your hormones kicking in. It's, you know, it's, it's a natural response to being desired. It's a natural response to, to somebody showing you affection, showing you closeness, putting a hand on the back of your neck, sitting close to you, looking you in your eyes, really caring about what you desire, what you, what you care about. All of those different things elicit a physiological response, an anatomical response in the body. You know, dopamines are released in the brain. You know, all other types of endorphins, you know, and so when you have this reaction to the presence of a person, and if that person can elicit that reaction in you consistently, then you say, I am in love with this person. This is my person. But guess what happens, though? As soon as that stuff stops, all of a sudden you fall out of love. And so, again, when it's based on those, you asked earlier, what's love got to do with it? I would say very little. 
You know, most relationships last because it's a choice. And people, they do love each other, but it's not always the romantic type of love. It's more of a respecting type of love, right? I love you. I have a serious and genuine and deep concern for you and your well-being. And you can depend on me to always have your best interests at heart and to make sure that your well-being is as well as it could possibly be within my control. To me, that's what it, right. it has more to do with that type of love. So what's the difference between infatuation and love? So infatuation is just like an interest. You know, you're intrigued. You can be infatuated by the way somebody just walked past you. You know, you don't have to know anything about them or care anything about them to be infatuated with them. You know, love typically has some type of care and genuine concern for the person involved as well. All right. Before I take another call, I got a tweet here from Kitty out in Cali, and she says, I would define love as the caring, concern, consideration, and respect for another that you would have for yourself. That would be my best definition Peace and blessings. She she wants to know what's your thoughts. Yeah, it's very similar to what I, how I was just describing it. So yeah, I would have to I would have to say she's in the same lane, at least on the same highway, headed in the same direction. <laughs> All right, uh, brother Carlos is online too, calling for Waldorf. Is brother Carlos? Good morning. You're on with Doctor Jeff. Yeah. Good morning. Good morning, my dear brothers, and I appreciate the conversation. Along the uh, same lines uh, as a previous caller, uh, Doctor Jeff. I want to ask this question. Um, many in, and this is what I hear from a lot of the uh, of our community, in terms in, 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 in terms of the the black athletes that go to the predominantly PWIs, uh, mm-hmm. even some of the coaches, uh, the black coaches uh, such as Emir Yudoka, and uh, also. Um, uh, Mel Tucker, uh, who are involved with these uh, white women, is there a hidden sexual dynamic that either uh, we brothers uh, or sisters imagine when we engage in sex with the other races? Now, they are saying, these brothers are saying that Many of these white women are compliant and will do other things sexually that black women will not do uh, due to their historical uh, journeys and so forth. Uh, So therefore, they go to these institutions and engage in these other activities uh, because of that attraction. Now, we need to do a deep study on an analogy on that. What is your take on that? And have you heard the same thing? I appreciate you. All right. Uh, uh, before you answer, Dr. Jeff, I got a few tweets who, who said exactly what Brother Collis was saying, that they, they do sexual things that the sisters won't do. So you sisters are out there. We need to hear from you. 800-450-7876. Dr. Jeff, I need to respond to Brother Collis's question. So, Carl, it might have been a time where that wasn't true. You know, where I'm sorry, it might have been a time where that was true to where uh, white women do things that black women don't do. Um, But I just I just don't think that that's true anymore. If it ever was actually true. Um, I think that part of it. Well, let me say this. One thing that that a a brother might get is default submissiveness, uh, default deference, right? Default uh, admiration. Uh, default 
elevation, right? I think that that's something that black men might experience from white women that they don't necessarily experience from black women. I don't think that it's sexual. Um, I, I think that it's more about that. I think it's more about the level of respect that they might receive just by default. Uh, and, and, you know, and that's from that passage that I read from Dr. from the Book of Wells and from the ISIS papers earlier. You know, she talked about, you know, this need for men to feel respected and how the very means by which men were respected by women at one point in time have been now removed. And so when those are removed, then so is the respect. And I think that, again, when she talked about welfare and, we, you know, the financial provision, you know, to women and children now is done without a man. And so there is, quote, unquote, no need for a man. And other women still see a value for men. And they definitely see the value for a strong black man. And so they they, they, they pursue. And the other thing is that I don't even know, it's like the question earlier, which direction is it going in? A lot of these black men, he spoke about athletes and these coaches, uh, are actually being pursued, right? They're being pursued, even if it's, if, even if it's a passive-aggressive type of pursuit. Uh, white women will put themselves in the in in the in the space to be chosen, with the intention of being chosen by these athletes, or by these wealthy white, by these wealthy black men. Uh, I love the picture when uh, Russell uh, Russell Wilson was being drafted when he got that draft call, uh, and he was sitting there on the couch next to his white girlfriend at the time. And it's a, it's a freeze frame, a picture where she actually looks like uh, like she's turning into Teen Wolf or something. I mean, her face is just, it's all contorted, and she's like more excited than he is. And there's this white man behind the couch, and he, the white man and his girlfriend, and uh, Russell Wilson's girlfriend at the time, they're high-fiving each other. And it's like, yes, we got one. That's the way I interpreted the picture. And so, you know, we're targeted at times. And the brothers might not be none the wise. They might actually think that it was a happenstance meeting. They might have just thought that it was a chance encounter, and this woman is just so pleasant naturally. Well, no, she might be targeted and have a mission of retiring off of you. Because, again, uh, divorce is one of the most uh, – Surefire retirement plan, you know, that exists right now. It's one of, yeah. Yeah, well, we talked about dating down. Uh, Tiger Woods, OJ, you know, they're picking white women. They're not pick, picking women on their level. It, it, what's up with that one? Yeah, and so dating down is not the same for me. We don't have the same quote unquote criteria. We don't need a woman who's quote unquote making the same amount of money as us, who's got the same level of degree as us or better. You know, in fact, uh, most men are more comfortable with women who don't make the same amount of money and who don't have the same college degree. Not saying aren't as smart as, I'm just saying with the same level of degree. And what I've heard from men is that when, when, they, when they encounter women like that, then there's a different type of woman that they're encountering. Or the woman has a different disposition. She has a different attitude, right? She's usually a boss. She's usually used to running things, including people. And so a man that has a certain level of status or stature, he's not going to be so easily ran. And that's not going to be his primary uh, desire as far as his intimate relationships are concerned. And so that's why you will find a wealthy man who will marry, you know, a woman who doesn't have a job, you know, who doesn't have a degree. Right. But you, you will rarely find it the other way around. You will rarely find a woman who with you know, with status or stature or a certain level of income who will, intentionally or uh, making her first desire to marry a man who has less than her. So it, it's totally different dynamic when it comes to men and women in that particular thing. It's 11 after the top. I've got some tweet questions for you, but I'll ask you this because, you know, speaking about Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods' first wife was a babysitter. OJ's first uh, second wife, the white wife, was a waitress. And yep. they, 
so are these brothers being targeted because they know they got money? She knew with Tiger Woods and how much money he had. And of course, and Nicole knew about OJ and how much money. And he ended up taking care of the whole family. Do, are they, do they select them? Or some of these brothers are not smart enough to know that you know these, these white women are hitting on them for their money? How do you see well, it's a song that my aunt told me about called When the Hunter Gets Captured. <laughs> and it's about, you know, when he, a hunter thinks that he's actually hunting, when it's actually the prey that's luring him into a trap. And so that could be the case. But I'm pretty sure, Carl, that it's like the admiration. It's the exaltation. You know, it's, it's the up, you know, it's like it's they, the, those women, that waitress, when she saw Tiger Woods, she had a certain look in her eyes of awe. And it made him feel good. I'm sure of that. You know, I wasn't there, so this is all allegedly. But you know, I would I would bank on it being that way. And you know, when you when you when you get when you compare that type of look and that type of sense of desire, whether it's real or contrived, and you compare that to somebody cutting you a side eye and sucking their teeth at you, you know, or giving you attitude off the rip, you know, you're you're going to go where the pleasure is. And that, that's just how it is, you know, and in and, and relationships, like when I'm talking to couples, when I'm, when I'm coaching couples, you know, and I'm trying to help them to get their desire for each other back. The number one thing is, is that you got to be desirable, you know, look at, look at how you're carrying yourself, how you're presenting yourself. Are you, would you desire you, you know, or would you run the opposite way? And a lot of times we don't present ourselves as desirable and it's because we're so beat up, you know, we're, we're, we're generations and generations and generations into some, into some stuff. I almost cussed. <laughs> And, and that we have battle scars, you know, we don't have as much uh, joy to express in these moments, especially when we're trying to figure out how to make ends meet, you know, where the next meal going to come from. You know, we got threats right around the corner, gunshots last night, you know, uh, living in food deserts, you know, get up, get cracked and get guns quicker than you can get a hot meal. You know, when you, when you're in, when you're in that context, when you come from that, or when the, when society and when culture is projecting so much negativity in your direction, you know, it's a little bit more difficult to be genuinely joyful. And so it's that it's that trap. It goes back to your earlier question, Carl. Is this stuff being intentionally done? And it absolutely is. And it's hitting us from all fronts, all angles. And our best our best salvation is to is go back to our culture. Yeah. 13 away from the top. Yeah, we got caught up on another traffic and weather update. But I had a tweet question about uh, cheating. And the, the, uh, the tweet says that white women will will be okay with a black man cheating on her, but sisters will not. And this is from a sister because she says, we sisters will not accept cheating. I want you to respond to that uh, tweet when we get back, Dr. Jeff. As I mentioned, it's 14 right. after the top. Yeah, we got to get caught up on the traffic and weather for our communities this uh, Wednesday morning. Folks, you want to join this conversation with Dr. Jeff, reach out to us at 800 450 7876. Your phone calls in four minutes right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL, where information is power. Life is full of things to manage your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, Ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. And good morning again, family. 20 minutes after the top of the hour, we're talking about relationships with Dr. Jeff. Dr. Jeff is a doctor of clinical psychology. He counsels couples. He also teaches over at Morgan State. And I got the sisters are tweeting, send me emails and tweets and messages for you, Dr. Jeff. <laughs> Let me just do this one first. It says, white women accept their men playing around with them. We sisters do not. 
the best, the better question you need to ask Dr. Jeff, why do black men play around on their women? <laughs> so it's not a uniquely black man thing and it's not a uniquely white woman thing. Uh, every, every couple has what we call rules of engagement and cheating is when you break those rules. And so what happens is that sometimes people have these unspoken rules and these assumed rules and these assumed liberties. And so it goes back to what we talked about earlier, Carl, as far as communication being one of the number one issues in relationships. Uh, because what we, what we rarely want to admit is that, that, you know, she knew he was a player before she got with him, right? That's fact. That's what attracted him. That was what made him more attractive. You know, a guy who gets women is more attractive to women than a guy who can't get a woman. That's just a fact. That's just how that goes. That's, a, that's very primal in our nature. And so when a, when, a, when a sister gets with a dude that she knows is a player or that's attractive to other women, and maybe she's okay with it at the beginning. Heck, she might have been a side, his side, his side girl at the time, his side woman at the time. And maybe she had thoughts that maybe she could change him or that he would change for her if, you know, going back to that love word, if he loved her, he would change for her. And that's like you asking a tiger to change his stripes. It, it ain't going to happen. And so, you know, there's so many different things that play into this. Why, you know, the, one, the accusation that black men somehow cheat more than other men, you know, because we oftentimes leave the other part of the equation out with, you know, how did you get with him in the first place? Did you know about, you know, him being with multiple women before you got with him? Did you, you know, you have to ask those questions as well, because as well, because then it puts the whole thing in a proper context and then you frame in a conversation appropriately at that point. All right. 23 after the top of that. You mentioned cheating. Well, what is cheating? Breaking the rules. So you, you have to set these rules. If you take another, if you're married and you have lunch with, with uh, your coworker, is that cheating? If, if if it's against the rules, yes. If if you and your significant other have said that that's not okay, and you all have agreed that that's a part of y'all rules of engagement that we don't do those things, or you can do those things, but I won't do those things, or I can do those things, you don't do those things, and if both partners agree that whatever the rules are are the rules, when those rules are broken, then that's cheating. So do, do you go through this when you counsel? Do they go the well? This is cheating. If you smile at another woman, or she, or if you, she, she, if you compliment another woman, do you go? Do you go through all those different issues in, in counseling, Doctor Jeff? Well, yeah. So, so I, I, I coach couples. So yeah, counseling is a whole other thing. You know, it's usually when you're dealing with like the psychological issues. But I, what I do is the coaching for the couples. And yeah, so if it's if it's really that deep, especially if I'm dealing with premarital coaching and I'm helping couples to figure out how to approach their relationship, those are the questions that, you know, what are y'all's deal breakers? What's okay? You know, what is it that you're going to absolutely not be okay with? What is it that you'll be hurt by, but you'll be okay, you could get over it? Yeah, we deal with all of that. And so it's almost like what Mr. Fuller says, you ask those 50 questions. I think it's up to 100 questions now. But, you know, you ask those questions so that there aren't any surprises. And, of course, you got to leave room for the person to lie to you, to not be truthful, or to change their mind somewhere down the road. But yes, it's absolutely important for the conversation, to, you know, especially, you know, what are the, what are our rules of, engage, of engagement? What's okay and what's not okay? And then you modify from there. You accommodate, you know, you draw the line. You say, hey, this ain't the relationship for me because I'm going to be eating pig feet every night. And if somebody's deal breaker is I don't like the smell of pig feet, I can't be with nobody eating pig feet, then that's don't get together. Wow. I'm not sure that people, you know, go through those roles playing before they hook up, though. You know, I'm just, don't. I'm just saying that. I, I don't know anybody who's done that. Yeah, most people don't. You know, the people that I work with do. Uh, but most people absolutely do not. They like, oh, I never even thought about that. 
You know, we, we talk about children. How many children do you want? Do you want children? People don't ask those questions. Uh, you know, people, for whatever reason, they, 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 they miss all of the important stuff when they decide to get with somebody else, especially with something as intimate as being their partner, you know, sexually, uh, romantically, you know, uh, long-term, short-term, whatever. You should always ask these questions. You should, you should know. I got some more tweets for you, but Wes is joining us. I think he's in the ATL. He's online, too. He has a question for you. Wes, good morning. You're on with Dr. Jeff. Right on, right on. Grand Rising, my brothers. Hey, look at here, man. I like insinuating positive, but before I get to uh, uh, back in the old days, what, Ruby D, Ozzy Davis, and fast forward to nine, you got Jonathan Major. He went through some stuff with a white woman. Now he got him a sister. But look here, man. My observation is, uh, uh, women look for a man they can't live without. Man, look for a woman we can live with, man. Okay, <laughs> yeah, that's simple, man. That's the way I roll, man. I'm still looking for a woman that 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 that, that I can do that. Well, well, she can't live without me, man. And I can live with a woman, man. That's easy. But the one that can't live without me, bro, that's what I'm searching for. I love y'all, crazy man. But I look at my man, John's the major, man. He made the right move. Got him a sister now. He said, bro, I love y'all, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty slick, but yeah, but some some have been talking about Jonathan Majors. If he is in fact with Megan Good now, some people are saying that that's a bad move that he just made. You know, based on the fact that how she her previous wedding or marriage recently recently just ended, so he could be rebound. That but all that could be PR stuff. You know, that could be a PR spin to try to get him back in the graces of black women and black people uh, by getting with Megan Good. But you know, the way that she and her pastor uh, ex husband you know split up. And, you know, it's, it's yeah, some say he set himself up if he's taking her seriously. It could be, man. She got, she done changed. She can't live without him, bro. I look at it, it's since they deposited, man. They together, and maybe they could equally yoke, bro. It's about equally yoke. You got to remember, she's an actor, though. So, you know, she could pretend like she can't live without him until she decides not to. Whatever, bro. I, at That's least true. Always bet on the black, man. Bet on the black. I love y'all. All right, thanks, Wes. Please. Yeah, it's one of the things we, we got to LA. Is, you know, a lot of these sisters are actors or want to be actresses, so just be careful when you're talking to them. So I'm glad you pointed that out, Dr. Jeff. But uh, I got another tweet for you for another sister. says, my son and I are not speaking. I told him that I was not comfortable with his white girlfriend, that if he married her, all of our hard-earned money will be enjoyed by, will be enjoyed by her and her white family. And she says, was I wrong, Dr. Jeff? I don't know enough to say if you was wrong or not, but, uh, I mean, it's your son, it's your life, it's your family. You know, you make the choices you do, but you also got to deal with the consequences of your choice. And so you're not speaking to your son now. You guarantee that he's not going to be talking to you or, you know, you guarantee that you won't have any influence over him anymore. Uh, and then you, I would be asking, what, what is the reason for it? Why did he go there? And some would say that, you know, your position of cutting him off, you know, you won't, although you got your reasons and your principles, you know, it might be a part of the reason why he went that way. You know, I mean, are you overbearing? I don't know who this person is. So I have no idea. These are genuine questions. I would ask her if I was talking to her, are you overbearing? You know, did, uh, is there something about maybe how he's seen you as his mom interact with men, his father or other men, or even how you've interacted with him that makes him have a distaste for black women at this point? I don't know. But those are questions that I would ask her if we were actually in a conversation because that stuff matters. Uh, but cutting, cutting your son off, uh, you guarantee that you, you pushed him out into the world. He, he's going to feel like he doesn't have support from you. So the other family will probably take him in and give him all the love that he that he that he's missing. 
and then he'll really be gone. And, you know, you have grandbabies that you may not be able to see. Uh, and, you know, that's just the choice that you've made, though. Wow. So it'll just backfire. It could. It definitely could. Yeah. All right. One of the worst things you could do really quickly, Carl, is get somebody an ultimatum, you know, especially if you don't really mean it. You know, so if it was an ultimatum, like you got to choose being with her or be with us and your family, you know, that, that girlfriend could do things for him. His mama can't do. His mama won't do. And so that's a heck of a situation, ultimatum. And so, you know, she might have had more influence. She might have been in his ear or something else. And he went. And so you give somebody ultimatum, be prepared for them to walk. Yeah, so and true. 30 after the top. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't bluff. That's the key. All right. Dr. Jeff Michaels in Baltimore on line three. If you want to speak, you got a question. Good morning, Michael. You're on with Dr. Jeff. Hey, good morning to you, too. Excellent conversation. I uh, am a person that's married. I've been married 31 years. Boy, too. I believe the most awesomest woman God ever created and uh, with three awesome children. And I, my son just got married. He's 29. And they're doing excellent. And I watched the way my son chose his wife, and it reflects how I chose his mother. And I always told my son, I said, don't just look at her. Go see where she came from. Go see her mother, her father, her sisters and brothers, and everybody to see is this the kind of person you want to bring in your life because, you know, I work with a lot of people, and I hear people talking about my mother-in-law. I can't stand my mother-in-law, father-in-law. And I said, Lord, have mercy. I'm blessed because I love my mother-in-law and father-in-law and sister-in-law and brother-in-law. And I think that makes a difference in the marriage, too, that you got to look at the whole tree of what you're bringing in your life. That way it will reflect on the children, how they function, do they love both sides of the family and everything, not just jump in it just because you see that person, but always check to see where they come from and what kind of behaviors that you want to be dealing with in your life. Y'all have a great one. All right. yeah, and, and I've heard that. that too, Dr. Jeff, that you, you should look at the, the mother because that's what you, your, your prospective wife, if, you, if you're thinking about getting married, is going to be looking like in a few years. It, it, what Michael said, is that cool? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's beyond what she's going to look like because, again, I, I tell the young brothers all the time, you know, if you can, you know, check out her mama. And it ain't because of how she's going to look, but it's more about because that's the woman that's raised her. And so you want to look at the quality of raising that she's had. And of course, you're only taking a snapshot of the present moment. But, you know, you can pretty much see, like, okay, if this woman is aggressive, if she's violent, if she's probably beating her daughter, then her daughter's going to have those emotional scars. She's going to have those issues that come with that. You know, is, is the mother herself single? Is she, is she perpetually single? Has she been single forever? You know, was she ever married? Did she divorce? No. So you want to understand the, the context and the culture within which your potential partner has been, has been raised and what they're being raised. And it's very important because like the brother said, you know, that's going to be the, that's going to be the grandmama, you know, to your, to your, to your baby, you know, that's going to be the grandfather to your baby. Those are the aunts and uncles to your babies. You know, is this the type of situation where you, you want your children to be, you know, as they're growing up, would you want them over at those people's houses as infants, as toddlers, you know, can you trust to leave your babies there? Heck, can you trust to be over there? Right. Uh, can you trust that your, your potential partner, is not being abused over there and therefore bringing that trauma of abuse over into your bloodline. You know, so you, those are all very viable and important questions and, and, and uh, things to consider when you are selecting the mate. Yeah. He made some very good points. And that's, that's how I advise the young brothers. Check out our mama. I even tell, right. when I'm talking to uh, 
Uh, hold the thought right there. I, I want to pick up on that when we get back. We're going to take our last look at the uh, news, traffic, and weather. And I'll ask you the question. You can think about it. And I got some tweet. I've got a bunch of folks who want to talk to you. But if if, if mom's been married, uh, you, your potential step uh, uh, mother-in-law's been married uh, several times, is that a red flag? I'll let you respond to that when we get back. We've got a bunch of folks who want to talk to you. 800-450-7876. You too can join this conversation with Dr. Jeff. Your phone calls in four minutes in Baltimore on 1010 WLB. Also in the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450. WOL, where information is power. Good morning again, family. Thanks for rolling with us all morning. It's been an interesting morning, 20 minutes away from the top there. I've got a bunch of folks who want to talk to Dr. Jeff. Get to them momentarily. Let me just remind you, coming up in the next few few days, uh, Brother Amande from the Watts Prophets is going to be here. He's going to talk about the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. He says there's a big distinction between rap and hip-hop. Also, Professor Manuham Pin. Many of you know him as the man who decoded the uh, the Willie Lynch letter. He found out it was a fake. And also activist Sinclair Skinner is going to join us. So if you're in Baltimore, make sure you read us locked in tight on 10. 10 WOLB. If you're in a DMV, we're on FM 95.9 and AM 1450 WOL. In the interest of time, I'm going to combine these questions because I got a bunch of tweets to, still for you, Dr. Jeff, and we got a bunch of folks who want to talk to you. But I asked you first if if the if your prospective mother-in-law has been uh, married several times, is is that is that a red flag? And I'm going to combine it. And then if you could answer this question, the, the tweeter says, "What would you?" What would your guest suggest a black male who loves black women do, given the current state of things? I forgot. This is an email, actually, but go ahead. Yeah, so um, the, 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 about the divorce, yes, that's a red flag. And it's simply just because uh, the, the potential partner has potentially been raised in the culture of divorce. And so, you know, and that, that makes it more likely that they would see that as a viable option if things get rough, you know, things get bumpy in a relationship, as all relationships do. And so they may be more likely to jump ship on you. And so I would definitely say that's a red flag and to tread cautiously in that type of situation. Um, and for the second question, the email question, uh, you know, what I would just tell the brothers to be very intentional uh, about their selection process, uh, not only who they select for long-term relations, but even who they select for, you know, just it's a hookup culture now, Carl. So who, even who you decide to hook up with, be very, very intentional, very, very careful. And first and foremost, focus on improving yourself. You know, get yourself into the best shape and condition that you could possibly be in physically, emotionally, psychologically, uh, uh, you know, uh, sexually. You want to get you want to improve yourself. So that way, whenever you are engaging in a relationship, you're bringing your best you're, you're bringing your best self to the conversation. And I would say the same thing for the sisters. Constantly improve yourself, um, you know, and listen and take the feedback to heart. And if you're getting the consistent type of feedback, if you're running into these relationships that don't last and they. They only last if people only interested in you physically or whatever. You know, do some self-analysis and, and refine yourself accordingly. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. All right, 18 away from the top. Yeah, let's go to Mike on line two. Mike, good morning. You're on with Dr. Jeff. Good morning. How are you gentlemen doing today? What's up, Mike? Everything's okay. I was um, 
and the reference with, with marriages lasting a long time, I've been married 21 years. I got cousins been married 30, 40 years. Grandparents was married over 50 years. Prior to me getting married, the Jet Magazine used to have a section in it where people who were married over 50 years, I had yeah. a bunch of those taken out and put on the wall. So that was one of my reminders that when I get married, it's forever. But what I would nice. say uh, with some of these conversations and like you said, you cancel people, and I'm a pastor. I cancel people as well. And some of the things that I find out in their relationship is when you're dating, when you're in dating mode, and do you see this as well, that people are putting their best face forward, as you may say. So you're in salesman mode. So the guy's trying to sell the girl on why he's going to be the best catch for her. She's trying to sell herself to him. And so they don't want to say anything as far as those uh, proposed questions that may start an argument, so everything is agreeable. And so, do you find that in your counselings that a lot of people wouldn't ask the hard questions because they don't want to break the relationship up before it starts, and then they don't get to those questions till three months to a year down the road, and then it's like, hey, that's a that's a you know non-stopper. Thank you, and have a great yeah. day. Hey, Thanks, thank Mike. you. Uh, yeah. So what I do is I encourage them to start an argument early. You want you want to see the person and how they handle uh, conflict and discomfort. You don't want to get blindsided by somebody who's going to kirk out and go zero to one hundred real quick. You know what I mean? You want you want to know that very early. You want to under you want to see how your potential partner deals with a difficult conversation. You know how are they going to communicate when they're upset? You know are they going to cut you off immediately? They're going to ghost you. They did you a favor if that's the case. You know so don't right. be afraid to bring tension early in a relationship because you, again, you would rather know sooner than later what you're dealing with. And, you know, cause tension is going to come in your relationship regardless. So get it out the way early. So you will know, you know, you might be easily triggered. You need to know too, that this person triggered me to the point where I was ready to drive off a cliff. You want to know that too. And so, yeah, so I don't avoid that. I encourage them to deal with difficult conversation in the very, very beginning, because that's going to show you what you need to see. All right. Thanks, Mike. Uh, 15 away from the top. Yeah, Marvin's uh, up next. He's on line four. Marvin, good morning. You're on with Dr. Jeff. Good morning, Carl. How y'all doing this morning, man? Peace. Uh, Dr. Jeff, I feel as though that I feel as though that a black man and a white woman, or let's just say a white woman and a black man, I feel as though that they have their own opinion about what they want to do which is the most freest thing there is on earth. You don't have to pay for uh, a decision. You don't have to pay to think about what you want to do. I feel as though there's something great for anybody to get with whoever they want and other people to stay out of their business. That's what, that's the way I feel, you know, because I mean, it's, it's, it's what people want. It's their joy, you know? So why should other people rob it? You know, that's about the only, that's about the only thing you can actually say that we have free and America as being black it's not related with a slave move, you know. It's great freedom. So I, I say, I say, I, I just say simply, let it be what it is. If a black want to get with a white, it's okay. If white want to get with a black, it's okay. You know what I mean? That's the way I see that. All right. Thank you. Thanks, man. Marvin. Let, let me pick up on that though. The, what Marvin said. Marvin says it's okay, and we should stay out of people's business. Basically, stay out of their bedrooms. And a lot of people I know agree with that. But you, you have, on the other hand, you'll have some people who call them sellouts. That they, 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 we're diluting the culture. We're losing our, we, you know, we're losing our, our culture by by race mixing. Your thoughts, Doctor Jeff? And Kevin, can you hang up on on line uh, on that line for me? Thank you. 
Go ahead, Doctor. I Jay. think that uh, I think that well, one thing that Mr. Fuller says is that um, interracial sex is one of the most harmful things that can happen under the system of racism and white supremacy. And he says that because, if I'm understanding, if I recall correctly, uh, because it, it confuses the victim of racism or the non-white person who's engaging in sexual intercourse with the white person. It makes them think that they're equal and they're on the same level and that they actually did have a choice in that. But from a powerless position, they really can't have that choice. It's almost like a power dynamic, uh, according to uh, what Fuller says and what Dr. Wellsen has said. Uh, and so that's that. I don't yuck anybody else's yum. I'm not in anybody's bedroom. Do what you do. You know, and when it's done, it's done. Uh, but I do see it from that direction. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's a possibility that that they aren't really making that decision for themselves or from a healthy position. And in this context of racism, white supremacy, you got to be very, very careful, you know, on that level of engagement. And let me jump in here and ask you this. Does the same thing, theory, uh, go for, for folks who are involved in the uh, different lifestyle, alternate lifestyle, <laughs> just put it that way? Because I see a lot of interracial couples in that way as well. You, you trying to get us canceled, Carl? <laughs> 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 no, nah, but seriously, though, um, again, I'll just, I just sort, uh, cite the source of Dr. Wells' work. She says that as a result, uh, and what we talked about earlier, as a result of the generations of sexual abuse and what Mr. Fuller calls tacky, trashy, and terroristic interactions, you know, we come out on the other end very much uh, out of out of order and more susceptible to experiencing mental health issues. Uh, and, and I'm not saying alternative lifestyles are a part of mental health issues, but I do know that some mental health issues do uh, come with alternative lifestyles. Uh, and so, you know, again, we're in a we're in a traumatized state, Carl. So, uh, anything that's happening in this system that seems to be out of order, Mr. Fuller says, blame the usual suspects. Yeah, because you you look at those who just got married, Robin Roberts, and you know this this, this comedian. I can't think of a name right now. I can see her, her face, but they 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 they're mates and are black. So uh, that's that's why I proposed that question to you. I was waiting for the same dynamic is is a play that, as far as interracial. Uh, relationships are concerned. Yeah, it's it's likely consistent across the board. It's likely to be consistent. All right, I got a tweet question for you. Greetings says, greetings. Will you ask Dr. Jeff if he thinks desegregation of the school system in the 70s has anything to do with blacks and whites starting to marry? And the person adds, I started school in the 70s and many of my friends dated white and a few married whites. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, you, you, you typically get with who you're in proximity to. You know, that's why people, they typically have affairs at work and or meet their boo at work and meet their boo at school and stuff like that. You know, it's, it's the proximity part of it. And then the other dynamic as far as that's concerned, you know, desegregation in the 70s or integration, uh, what you have is uh, the, the so-called forbidden fruit part of it. Right. And so, you know, people have been told to stay away from this for so long, it becomes desirous. Folks want to know, well, what's that about over there? you know, black and white alike. And I think that that has a lot to do with it as well. You know, uh, 10 away from the top there. We mentioned briefly earlier about John Winter and the Rolling Stone magazine and, and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and that what he said of, about uh, black uh, artists that were sort of illiterate. I want to get your thoughts on that because uh, is he saying that because of today's crop of, of uh, black artists, I'm talking about the rappers and the hip hoppers that he thinks are unintelligent or, or not on his level or whatever he said, but he, he, he talked about, he mentioned Stevie Wonder and Marvin and, 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 uh, and Curtis Mayfield maybe, but basically he was saying, and, and people are saying 
that's how white folks feel about it. all these years he's been holding this and and and, and now he's expressing this because of the music oh i know you read the article so what are your thoughts on that yeah, I think that he was just being bigoted. It didn't have anything to do with the modern uh, artists right now. Because again, he's talking about Stevie Wonder and, and all the all the greats. And 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 what he said was so just stupid because it doesn't even make sense. It's like who doesn't love Stevie Wonder's music? Who would think that Stevie Wonder was inarticulate? Who could think that James Brown was inarticulate? You know, he might his enunciation might not have been <laughs> when he was talking, but you know how the joke goes with James Brown talking. But there's no way he could think of Dionne Warwick you know, was inarticulate. And there's just no way, Carl. And so what he was doing was just being ignorant. He was being a bigot and potentially a racist and white supremacist. That's all that was. And you know what? It reminded me how many people like that are there who are doctors, lawyers, police officers, hold those same bigoted uh, thoughts. And we have to deal with them on a daily basis. Your teacher, uh, the teacher was teaching your children. And you don't know this is how they really feel about you. And then all of a sudden they they, they drop this bomb and you go, wow, man, did you really? Because you you kind of think the people who deal with with entertainers and athletes, because we co-mingle a lot with them and they know them a lot, that they're more liberal or they're more understanding of our culture. Culture. So that you know, I'm sure a lot of black folks are like were shocked when when they read that article. Yeah, I wasn't surprised at all, Carl. It's it's part of course, man. Um, and like you were saying, you know, we get we got we've got racists and bigots in all walks of life. And uh, you know, fortunately, this guy, he's you know, he's just a music editor or whatever. But you know, when when you talk about people like police officers, lawyers, you know, OBGYNs, delivering babies and stuff, you know, then you start you get into some really dangerous territory for this bigoted uh, ideology to be manifested in behaviors. You know, uh, we were looking about the uh, Chicago sh- Chicago Bears and and their coach. I see his name; it escapes me right now. And, and and you know, he came out as bigoted, and he was there when the, remember when the Bears won, won the Super Bowl Super Bowl shuffle with the fridge and and that, and Jay McMahon was a quarterback. And then later on, yeah. he comes out; he's he's he's, he's a, just a straight stone cold racist, and he's dealing with these young brothers in the locker room. And I, I was wondering. How how do they feel when they read that now? He's really telling, you know, he's a Trumpster, you know, he's coming out and just just expressing what he really felt like. Because I know some of them are saying, man, I didn't pick that up, you know. I didn't know he thought about us like that. So I'm just you know, wondering how, that, how prevalent is that? I think that other ones probably are, are like having a sigh of relief because now certain behaviors and experiences that they had now make sense. Like, oh, that's why it was this. Because, you know, before... They're getting gaslit. You know, they're being made feel like they're crazy, reading too much into a situation. Oh, you're doing too much, man. He ain't. He didn't mean it that way. Man, he's not treating us differently, man. You didn't, you know, you're that offensive lineman who didn't block for you, he didn't do that on purpose. You know, coaching them, they're not conspiring against you. They didn't cut him because he's black. Now it makes sense. All those experiences, those subtle backstage racist acts, now make sense to the people that had those experiences in real time back in the day. Yeah, Mike Dicta. That's what I was thinking about. Just got his name back. Mike yeah, he's calling, calling you the yeah, yeah, calling you the N word. You know, in his mind, but not you know, not blatantly saying it. You know, and and relishing in the fact that they won the Super Bowl. Man, that was an interesting article. Doctor Jeff, thank you. How can folks follow you uh, on on social media? I'm on social media as uh, Doctor Jeff Menzies. That's M E N Z I S E on uh, Instagram, and then the real Doctor Jeff Menzies on Facebook. Thanks, Dr. Jeff. Yes, sir. 
Thank you for sharing this information with us. Folks, we're out of here. Stay strong. Stay positive. Please, please stay healthy. We'll see you tomorrow morning, 6 o'clock, right here in Baltimore on 1010 WOLB. In the DMV, we're on FM 95.9 at AM 1450. WOL, where information is power.